0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: Pin is the one and only friend Leon's ever had. The only one who doesn't care that Leon's different. God, must be crazy to be here tonight. I defended you. Boy, was I dumb. You never had secrets from each other. Only Pin knows Leon's darkest secret. Leon? Hello, Marsha. Oh, my God. When someone hurts Leon, Pin hurts them. When someone tries to come between them... And won't let them. I don't think Aunt Dorothy will be staying with us for very long. What do you mean? It might take her a little while to feel the vibrations, but I think she will. Dorothy. If you want to get closer to Leon... You'll have to take care of Pin before Pin takes care of you. Is Pin a friend? Oh, oh please. Or an enemy? Please. Only Leon knows. What have you done? What have you done? What am I going to do? Pin. Some friendships die hard.
3: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Elric Kane.
4: Hey, thanks for having me back on a fun one, given that my last two were necrophilia and child abuse. I'm looking forward to this Incest Light episode.
3: Woohoo! Go Incest! (laughs) Yay! Light! (laughs) Light. Also with us this week is Mr. Paul Korup.
5: Uh, yes, uh, from connexploitation.com. dot uh, com. Thanks for having me, guys.
3: This is exciting.
5: My first time on the show.
3: I figured there was nobody better to talk about this movie than a expert on exploitation. <laughs> Possibly, yes. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at the 1988 film from writer-director Sander Stern, Pin, also known as A Plastic Nightmare. The film stars David Hewlett as Leon and Cynthia Preston as Ursula, a brother and sister whose parents die in a tragic car accident, leaving the siblings with the family home, an inheritance, and an anatomical dummy named pin named after pinocchio and from there things get kind of complicated so we're going to be getting into spoilers as usual so if you don't want the movie ruined go watch pin and come back we will still be here so elric i'm curious when was the first time you saw pin and what did you think
4: i didn't see it as a kid i saw it when i was working at facets um and so i'd you know rent five films a night kind of period in life because you had them at your disposal. and i remember seeing the cover for a long time thinking that one looked Interesting. Really enjoyed it when I watched it. Didn't think about it again, and then years later did an interview show with uh, Vincenzo Natale. and he was talking about David Hewlett and their friendship, and it made me kind of revisit how big a fan he was of Penn. So I revisited and had a totally different experience with the movie. You know, after that, really enjoyed it. How about you, Paul?
5: I think I saw the film sometime in the early 1990s. Um, I actually, uh, I know this didn't get a big release uh, um, in the in the United States. It did get a uh, theatrical release in Canada, though, and I do distinctly remember being in the theater one time and seeing the poster in the kind of the coming attractions slot on the on the wall. outside of the theater, and I always kind of, you know, it's a very intriguing poster with the with the staircase and the pin at the top there. So I, I was always uh, I was always kind of interested in it. I don't think I rented, rented it until the 1990s. But when I did see it, you know, for someone who had watched a lot of slashers and was, was kind of expecting this to be in a similar vein, um, I was surprised by kind of how
3: adult the film was and how
5: sophisticated that the, the kids in the film are.
3: It's interesting. This is is branded a horror film, but there's not a whole lot of horrible things that happen inside of it. It it is so atmospheric. It just really kind of builds this world. It's not even like there's supernatural stuff that happens. There's only one instant in the film that I can think of where it's like, oh, that might have been supernatural, but at the same time, it might not. I remember seeing stills from this one for a long time, and for some reason, I think I first heard about this right around the time that the film, was it Thesis was coming out? Is that a, a, a woman that was working in a hospital and uh, I want to say there was some sort of like skeleton or anatomical dummy or something like that and there were, it seemed like there were a couple hospital films happening and I remember seeing images from this film of Pin and I'm just like, any movie that has that kind of anatomical dummy in it, I mean that's just it's such an inherently creepy thing To have this model of the human body With all of the skin ripped off Kind of sounds like the last movie We talked about, <laughs> <Ulrich>. uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It did cross my mind <laughs> you've got me you know let me try to track this thing down and for a while it was not that easy to find luckily anchor bay put out a really nice version of it i think that it's since gone out of print and so now it's out on youtube and for a while you know when i was first looking for it it was kind of on the bootleg circuit so managed to track it down then and yeah it it sticks with you it, it's just it kind of uh, for lack of a better term it gets under your skin it just stays with you
4: yeah, and partly I think that's because it isn't a, a straight horror film. It's, it's really the psychodrama and those kind of movies. Like uh, It reminds me somewhat of some of the Psycho uh, remakes more than Psycho and, and a lot of the Riff movies that have riffed on Psycho, like Santa Sangre or uh, one of the ones that is more a slasher, Don't Go in the, in the House, you know, uh, which I always like those movies. I think they're drawing from a release, a well, a well that's already proven, but they get to just put their own little spin on it.
3: Most of the things that are happening in this film are related to the family unit and just the kind of oddness that can come from that. I mean, we've got Terry O'Quinn in here who is playing the father of this family. He's very, very cold. It just, uh, and he treats his children differently. He treats Ursula one way and he treats Leon another way that sets us up for really most of the action that happens in this film is just the way that Leon Kind of, he kind of gets damaged by his father, I would say, and really, he he doesn't really have any friends other than this anatomical dummy that they call Pin. That is in his father's office and it seems like his father talks to him through pin via ventriloquism more than the father talks to leon himself you know and just uses that as a means of communication and so by not hearing his own father's voice i think he really kind of latches on to pin as being almost more of his father than his real father is
4: sorry you didn't win the bet Maybe if you just ask Father for some clothes, he'd give some to you.
2: If I wore clothes, then no one could see inside me and I wouldn't be any good for teaching anymore. Anyway, we shouldn't be having this conversation. You know, the doctor doesn't like me talking to anyone when he's not here. You won't tell him.
6: You go out to the waiting room now. Pin is tired.
5: Basically, Pin essentially becomes like his father, and it is a father-son relationship that they have. Uh, I, I'm reminded of one scene that happens about about a third of the way through when uh, um, the father is presenting uh, gifts, birthday gifts, to Ursula, and uh, uh, says one of them is from Pin, and it's a music, like a music box.
2: This is just the kind of present I'd expect from Pin. You know what I wish? I wish Pin could come here and live with us. Father wouldn't let him. He's an office dummy. Don't you ever call him that!
5: That's such reverence for Pin. It, it really is kind of a, not a friendship, but kind of a like a hero worship or a fatherly kind of like always going to him for advice. And he's always just kind of seeking that kind of master-student relationship with Pin
4: it's very strange that the only time uh, terry quinn the, fa- the actual father kind of will open up in a way and speak directly to his children is standing behind them and they're facing a doll you know and that's <laughs> and that's as close as you, <laughs> you can get to your father it's it's pretty disturbing and sex ed through that is to me one of the strangest canadian things i didn't know about
3: we get to witness the primal scene through that i mean we don't have leon spying on his parents we have leon spying on pin when The doctor's nurse comes in and and has a little uh, fling with Pin. I can't even imagine the damage that the nurse must have in order to try to make love to this anatomical dummy. Oh, she's just fine.
4: That's a pretty remarkable scene. i got to say, if I discovered this film as a young adolescent, it's it, it's the opposite of all the things we watched in, say, the Friday 13th-type movies because the woman isn't very attractive. She's middle-aged, and she's doing something with this doll. So we really are kind of positioned with the boy. Not We don't want to see this, which is rare when watching a sex scene in a horror film.
5: And two, the, the expression on Pin's face in that scene, <laughs> I mean, uh, I assume we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the way Pin seems to change a bit throughout the film. But uh, in that scene in particular, he has this kind of like bewildered, <laughs> like, what's going on, <laughs> kind of look, looking to to, uh, to Leon almost for help. But it's uh,
4: it, it's got that uh, Kuleshov effect uh, quality because he's he's not actually changing his expression, but if you you know project no. onto him, <laughs> you suddenly you know it pins looking a different way with each scenario, which is kind of funny.
3: His actual visage changes at one point, which is kind of crazy. Whereas, you know, and this is jumping ahead way into the movie, but when Leon decides to. I don't even know how he does it, like kind of puts this latex face on the pin's face to make him even more like his father. It takes something that's already creepy and makes it even creepier.
4: The stunned expression on that face is very, it's, it's very creepy.
3: Well, I think they do a really smart job, too, because rather than us hearing a difference in the voices between what Terry O'Quinn would be doing as the doctor projecting his voice onto the pin. And then later on what Leon is doing, projecting his voice on the pin. We just have one voice throughout it being Jonathan Banks, um, who at this time was probably best known for like Beverly Hills cop and probably better. Well known right now as being on better call Saul and, and breaking bad. But yeah, he has had quite a, a amazing career I was very surprised to read that it was him doing the voice for this. But yeah, I thought it was smart that they used that because then it kind of also obfuscates that it's Leon providing the voice for pin. And it's like, okay, where is this voice coming from? Cause this is the same kind of voice that was coming out when his father was doing it.
4: And it does add to the supernatural ambigu- ambiguity. I mean, it's such a clear voice that when you see Terry O'Quinn's lips barely moving, you, it, it, it has a presence to it that even though you know it, that he's not alive, it, it always leaves that hint. And I think that's why, why the film works so well.
3: When they pointed out in the audio commentary too that his voice changes a little bit as it goes along, which I didn't notice the first time that I watched it or the second time, but it took me, you know, the hearing that commentary to really hear that Pin's voice becomes more clear when it's coming out later on as if it was really There, you know, that it is kind of that, you know, throwing your voice, kind of uh, not pronouncing everything the same way that you normally would because you have to hide the movement of your lips. Now I understand that you
2: you went to the circus. I did. I saw the hat lady. Hat lady. Fat. Hat lady.
3: Hat lady. Leon, for some reason, when Pin is speaking to him, you can hear him clear as day. Again... Are we hearing it and Leon hearing it is it is he actually doing the voice throwing you know there are moments where i'm just like i wonder how much of this is in leon's head
5: Well, there's certainly that's that's kind of Ursula's reaction too when she first sees uh, uh, Leon talking to Pin without her father around. I mean, I think immediately she starts, she looks, you know, bewilderment at at Pin and then right at Leon's lips to see what you know is he is he being the ventriloquist here or, or what's going on or is Pin actually alive here? The one part I still find kind of inexplicable
4: is Tara Quinn, after he kind of sends the kids out of the room, he goes back in and just starts talking to Penn. As if he's not being heard, though. As if he's alone. And that's the one moment where you're like, ah, his relationship is also unhealthy to Penn. So it's not just a one-way street. There, There is something wrong <laughs> in this family.
3: When... Terry Quinn realizes that his son has this unhealthy relationship with Pin. That that's when he decides he's going to take Pin away, and then he kind of pays the price. He pays the price by being in this car accident with his wife and dying. And so it's one of these like, okay, was it Pin who caused this? Was it Leon who caused this? Or was it just this weird twist of fate? And that's the one moment in the film that I think you could say that there's something supernatural going on, or it could be that the car moved and Pin moved with it. So, you know, it's it's nice that it keeps it so vague like that, and we don't have these clear cut answers to say, oh yeah, there is something alive about this, because really, there's no other indication at all that we really should be thinking that Pin has any sort of, you know, uh, uh, animism to it.
4: It's a really great sequence in the film, probably the best sequence in the film. And the doctor for a moment has genuine doubt, I think, for the first time in his life when he's in that car. I think he is so unnerved by seeing his son act that way that when the last thing he says when when he's about to crash, the dummy reaches forward and he says, get it off of me get it off me that's coming from a place of actual fear so whether you know if this never had supernatural in this moment he actually doesn't know and i think that's that's pretty unnerving that sequence
3: and that's what helps really launch us into the bulk of the film which is this relationship now having this this kind of isolated family and there is, uh, then the problem becomes the interlopers. You know, I think Leon would be really happy to live in a house with just him and Pin and Ursula and that would be his uh, ideal situation. And when people come into the situation, like his Aunt Dorothy who comes in and really starts to bring that law of the land, kind of, she's echoing a lot of things that her mother, that his mother and the doctor had said, you know, the whole thing with the Um, You know, the covers on the couches and all these kind of things. I mean, it just sets him off again. It's he wants to have just that little nuclear relationship with just, you know, him, his sister, and for lack of a better term, his father figure. And anybody that intrudes on that is we're going to have a problem with.
5: What's funny about when Aunt Dorothy comes, I mean, even though it's clear that Leon has some issues throughout the film, throughout the early part of the film, that's the first time we really see him get kind of angry and kind of um, revengeful, and Pin kind of take a, a bit of a nasty turn in kind of the advice. Even though he's he's been using Pin in this in this kind of fatherly way, all the advice that Pin really gives him is. is up until that point anyways pretty good you know he's he's giving him advice about how to go, where to go to school he's giving a, him advice about uh, when Ursula is pregnant and and who should he talk to i mean it's it's all it, it has helped him in some way but when Aunt Dorothy comes it just suddenly starts to turn nasty he doesn't want her there and he starts starts to get aggressive pin starts talking about uh, getting rid of her and it just the film starts to take a, a bit
3: of a turn at that point if the voice of pin is leon then he's basically just talking to himself throughout this whole thing. And all of these good ideas that come from Penn, obviously, are coming from inside of Leon. So it's that whole thing. I mean, I'm sure that we all do it here where you kind of are, are your own best console as far as, you know, I have a problem. How am I going to solve it? And you think about all these things, that, you know, well, I, I want to go to school or do this or the other thing. And you're kind of like your own best person to talk about this kind of stuff, and it's just interesting to me that he has this outward way of projecting that. And so, yeah, Leon can still act all innocent, or he can try to act innocent, and he can put all of these bad thoughts and bad ideas into pin's head and then hear them from pin and that way he he kind of helps maintain his own innocence and that's one of the things that i like about this film is just that ability to of leon to project himself onto pin and just keep himself a little bit more safe because of that
4: i actually think you know go one step further i think he's a genuinely fractured Self, it's not, it's not his inner counsel like we would have. I think that he is not aware of the other being within him. I think he definitely believes in it. And the key scene we didn't really discuss earlier in the film is, you know, when his sister sees the father's lips moving when he's getting counseling that one time. That's the changing point for their destinies. Like you have these two characters who otherwise would be exactly the same, but from that moment on, she's questioning things in her life and wanting to get you know further away, maybe from her family. And you know, after her father gives her an abortion, another weird Canadian thing, it's a little off putting. Uh, he doesn't see that, and it really I think starts creating this fractured being that he views Pen as all the good things about his parents, but none of the bad things. You know, it's this perfect uh, family unit now. You know, once it's just Pin and them. And I find that to be what's interesting and, it make, you know, connects to, to the end. You know, I think he really is a fractured self. And then it just pushes it further as the film goes.
3: Yeah, and I see him really thinking that his sister, that Ursula, believes in Pin as much as he does. Uh, and it isn't until later on when she finally gets a boyfriend and they... Talk about the problems that Leon has, that it it just is such a betrayal for him to hear that she doesn't believe in Pin. It's almost like her coming home and and coming out as an atheist or something. It's just like such a a mind-blowing thing for him that anybody would question the, the veracity of Pin. She doesn't have the pinning. Yeah, but yeah, I completely agree as far as the the him having that fractured personality and yeah, there's a lot of times where I don't think that he realizes that he's even doing this voice for Pin that he doesn't. I believe that in his heart he believes that Pin is real.
4: I think honestly that's the point of the movie. To be honest, I think it's about that. That's what makes him a sympathetic character. That he's a he's really a victim in this film. He he really isn't the villain of the film per se. Because he really, ble- I, I don't think he ever is trying to put that on. I think he believes wholeheartedly, and then you know, is slowly taken over by it.
3: Well, I think that David Hewlett really plays that role so well, just so completely guileless, and just has that kind of innocence on his face throughout so much of this movie. And it's it's those rare moments where he does get angry, where it's just like he can really bring a lot of gravitas to the role that he's playing, and and he is fascinating to watch on screen and to watch him reacting to these other characters and it's it's neat because you know Pen obviously can't react to anybody else, and then we really have to see how Pen might react through David's face. You know, I mean, we do have that Kuleshov effect that you're talking about, where we can kind of project onto this inanimate object what we might think that he's feeling. And I'm sure that's exactly the same thing. So I think that's one of the reasons as well why we feel sympathy with the Leon character is that he's looking for that reaction as much as we are.
4: Yeah, and he almost outgrows him in that one moment. I know we'll talk about the poem, but. After that, he he actually grows in confidence for a moment, and, and there's actually a scene where you get the feeling that there's a chance for him to um, you know actually have confidence in who he is, and almost put pin in a corner. Pin's trying to advise him, and then he overhears them talking badly about him, and it all changes. It go you know goes completely the other way.
3: And I guess we should probably. Say what happens to Aunt Dorothy, and uh, what almost happens to some of uh, you know. Th- there are other visitors into this world here and there, but things don't usually end very well for people that come into this house. I mean, they're scared away uh, or scared to death. In the case of Aunt Dorothy,
5: yeah, it almost reminded me of kind of you know those old uh, you know movies like The Tingler or, or uh, you know where they have the, the the old woman where they're trying to drive insane through some kind of weird plot. So Aunt Dorothy uh, uh, wakes up in the middle of the night, hearing somebody calling her name and calling her name, and she kind of turns over, and Pin is lying on the bed beside her, <laughs> and kind of starts uh, starts advancing on her, and, and basically chases her out of the room. The end moment there, when Leon rises, kind of rises up behind. I mean, there's kind of, it's kind of a weird scene because. There's never any question, I, I think, in, in that scene that it's it's basically Leon behind Pin. I, I don't think there's any kind of assumption here that Leon's come alive or, or – sorry, that Pin has come alive or, or is, is attacking. It's always kind of – you realize he's behind it. It's, it's kind of a plan between the two of them to, to, to attack. It's not like Leon as, as Pin attacking. It's, it's them together as a force.
4: Yeah, they're doing a bit of gaslighting, right? It's yes. or diabolique. The great you know, the great ending of diabolique. It's the same kind of idea, and it yes. works really well in that scene. It's actually a scary scene, and I think for the same reason he's saying, which is you know it starts off in a place that actually feels momentarily actually creepy because there's you know that tiny flicker of a chance that Pin's doing it, but even when you realize he's not, it still has uh it's it's creepier because you realize a, a guy is trying to kill his aunt by scaring <laughs> her to death.
3: Yeah, and I think that's what really helps make this one of the more effective films that I've ever seen, is just that ability to take us and just have those little moments where you're just like, wait, is this super? No, okay. And then how weird is this anyway? At least it's not supernatural, but it's still really fucked up.
4: Yeah, and, it, and the directing is always it's it's very classy uh, film for the kind of film it is. I, it, you know, I keep thinking when I'm watching it, this is the kind of film you know as a Blumhouse would have a lot more cheap scares where we wouldn't see that him behind it behind it. Right. Like we would, you know, they would push that a lot further. But I think uh, clearly uh, Stern's trying to at all points say no, no, he really is not supernatural. You have to believe it. You know, he's not
3: trying to trick us in any way. Which I think is a, a very surprising approach actually. So let's talk a little bit about Stanley, which is the, uh, the the boyfriend of Ursula who comes in. And that's pretty much the last straw for this. I mean, you did talk about how there is that moment where it seems like Leon might be able to break free of pin and and become his own person and and this is the moment too where this is the happiest that we've seen ursula is having this this other person around having having a real live human being there for her to talk to and stanley um seems like a pretty great guy and really wants to help her out and so it's it's ultra tragic when leon tries to or pin tries to get him out of the picture again
5: yeah, I really like the scene where he's uh, first introduced to Pin, just coming in, and, and you, you're, you know, even uh, even watching the film, you're not quite sure how Stanley's going to react. But clearly, Stanley and Ursula have talked about it, and when he comes in and offers him the chocolates and treats him like a normal human being, just just looking at at Leon's face in this scene, it's it's just kind of fascinating. He seems to be like. Watch just waiting and watching for for Stanley to be repulsed or to for Stanley to get the wrong idea or something or or not take him seriously it makes the scene very very uh, suspenseful for me. Anyways, uh, watching it, you just you never know whether Stanley's just going to be like, no, nope, I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. And this is not a person. But he doesn't. At least you know they they humor him. They they uh, he treats him very respectfully and it, and it seems to work for a while. Anyways.
4: And Leon doesn't open up to people. So he starts to open up because of how nice he is and how Mm -hmm. believable it is. And then uh, that's why he gets so hurt.
3: Well, you know, and he he gets chocolate and Penn likes chocolate. (laughs) The guy that plays Stan, John Piper Ferguson, I know that I've seen him in probably a dozen, two dozen other things. I mean, he just has been in so many other things, but I really didn't recognize him in this role. I don't know if it was just that he was younger than I'm used to seeing him or what it was, but I was just like, wow, I I really just don't recognize this guy. And I know that David Hewlett definitely changed his appearance for this. I've never seen David Hewlett blonde. There were a few moments where I was watching this and going, is that really him? And then finally, once I heard his voice, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's him. But almost unrecognizable with that blonde hairdo. And again, this is younger than I've ever seen him before.
4: It's actually one of the best cast when it casts the children through the three different age periods. And that, that's really hard to do. You know, I I don't think I've ever seen a film do three different spots where it just felt like the progression of him very naturalistically is great.
5: Yeah. Even the way that, that those scenes kind of play out. I mean, so many horror films, it's kind of like, you know, 10 years ago. And then it's like, you know, you get a five-minute, uh, um, you know, background. But this one really seems to, the way it moves through time, very natural way, very kind of understandable. And, and it isn't just kind of the stuff before the main movie, right? It isn't just, just kind of the background setting. It, it really just kind of
3: progresses. Well, even that kind of opening where we have the kids outside the house and, and staring in and talking about, you know, oh, he never moves. I mean, that's a nice way to open this up and give us these questions that are going to take us through the better part of the film as far as what is going on here, what's happening. And they do kind of the same thing in in the novel as well as far as giving us this cold open and then taking us into this. I thought that it was very, very well adapted and very um smart as far as like you were saying how much time we spend with the kids as they're growing up because it doesn't feel like you know okay let's get this stuff out of the way it feels like this is there's a lot of great information that we're gaining
4: it's yeah it's not expository it's it's really um he treats his audience really like he knows they understand movies and can just jump into scenes which is really rare in that kind of filmmaking sometimes
3: and it's not like leon age 13 what are you doing yeah, we talked a little bit about how Pin changes and the way that he kind of looks more human, I guess probably middle point on through this, and it it just makes it worse. I mean, I don't know if I got used to seeing the anatomical dummy, but just that way that he's now dressed in the father's clothes and has that horrible new face on and everything, it just... I mean, it really freaks me out. It's, it's a little more
4: sex doll than it than the anatomical <laughs> one because he's got that mouth that's just open and then an expression of an O face that is just wrong at all times in the film. You know, it's strange.
5: I believe the director said he that the that the mouth did move in the in the commentary. I, I believe that's what he was trying to say but yeah it just seemed the subtle expressions i mean the the face is obviously a major change but i I was just kind of fascinated every time i watch it i'm fascinated by the way pin's face i mean with the lighting and and but but possibly also other manipulations to, to make pin change the expression from kind of surprise to guilty to menacing there's so many kind of different expressions he has despite only having really one plastic expression
3: and Banks does such a good job with the voice because he can never really raise it above too much of a whisper. You know, he doesn't have that full range um, that he can do as a, as a normal human being. And he keeps it at that smaller tenor, you know, so well throughout the film. But at the same time, to your point, Paul, he can really kind of bring out the menace and the guilt and all of these kind of things, even with that that little voice that he's given to Penn. Mm-hmm. And he gives
4: good advice. For the most part, I actually think it's very measured and even and it's I don't believe really we ever hear him saying the darker things to him. I, we don't often say you must eradicate that person, you must go kill them. It's not Machiavellian or something. It's it feels much more, you know, measured like, well, you should be careful because they you know how people are, they can be duplicitous. You know, it's it, I
3: find that quite refreshing with the character. <laughs> not the neighbor's dog telling me to go out and kill young couples, yeah. Of Sam. yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about that awesome poem that Leon's been working on for I heard you were
4: going to recite it
3: Oh, I I I was thinking about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to do a beat interpretation of it Um, In these lines he's Contemplating rape for the first time Closer she came to him Moving It seemed in silent motion His heart beat steadily within the caverns of his bosom Driving hot blood thick down Down into the depths of his loins He lunged from the deepest, darkest passions in us all She turned without a sound and faced him. He stopped abruptly. It was as if a knife had performed an instant castration. He was looking into the eyes of his sister.
3: That's another thing where um, I think he's trying to push buttons with Stanley and Stan just is right there. Oh, that's so great. That's so good. I love that poem about how you want to sleep with your sister.
4: (laughs) She's not phased. That's what I love about this movie. She thinks it's, oh, it's just, you know, he's just expressing himself. A very artistic Canadian family.
5: There's definitely a conversation about about how much incestual overtones are are in the film. Now, I understand the book does have more, but to me, me, the, the relationship is not... I mean, this is one obvious hint of it, but it doesn't seem terribly incestuous to me. Um, I almost feel like the relationship is more almost father-daughter, especially as, as um, Leon progresses through the film and, of course, starts changing more into Pin himself. And, of course, not to disclude a kind of father-daughter sexual relationship as well, but it just seems to me that he has kind of a protective you know, feelings towards her, not necessarily sexual. Despite the poem, I guess I should say, <laughs> let's discount the poem. <laughs> well, well, no, I I, 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 you know, it's an important, it's an important thing, and yeah, I, I, kind of agree with Mike that it's maybe him, maybe kind of pushing Stanley's buttons a little bit, or, or, you know, maybe revealing something he, he shouldn't. But I, I, don't really, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like the relationship is too, otherwise, other than that, sexual. I mean, I guess you can argue that he, uh, Leon's jealous about um, whenever Ursula's is not spending time with him. But, you know, again, it's hard to say. Like, is is it just kind of a, a, a family thing where he's feeling alone without her or, or what? I don't know.
4: It's a little bit like uh, codependence. I think if she hadn't seen her father's lips move that day, they would be very much alike. And uh, they would be just codependence without their parents, both equally in a bad place, but rather than incest. Yeah, I think you have a good point about that.
3: Well, yeah, and it's not like you see Leon— leering at her or you know just with the uh, lust in his heart or anything and he doesn't talk about like grabbing her by the pussy or anything <laughs> like that so if there is incestuous overtones they are very low-key and they send tend to just come out during that poem and then just the fact that you have these two very attractive people living together and who knows what's going on but i've seen more in uh, even with non incestuous relationships, where I'm just like, you know, oh boy, it really looks like those two really want to, you know, bonk each other. And then I find out in the movie, oh no, they're brother and sister. It's like, oh. <laughs> what are you doing?
2: You're my present this year.
4: Well, maybe, And there might be some proof to what Paul's saying at the start that it's more of a transference into a father figure because at the start, he, when he finds out his sister's with a guy, he just goes crazy like you would expect a father to. But the father in the story never – gets crazy over what she does he's very cold and measured about it even when he has to give her an abortion all he says is well you'll never you, you know you won't want to do that again it, and so maybe he has to become the more emotional parent in the film and so he's kind of forced into this role to make up for the you know his real parents and so yeah so it probably is like the slow transfer to a father which is mm-hmm. equally weird
5: <laughs> well, there's also this discussion they they have earlier on about the need Ursula asks him when they're much younger do you do you ever have the need and he says no i'm too young and then I think later he says something you know don't you have the don't you still have the need but it just seems he he's so kind of asexual in this role, and I guess there's that the other scene where he has the date. Uh, where, where they're sitting in the movie theater watching Scanners. <laughs> well, she's, well, so well, you know, she, she's, uh, she's licking his face, and he's just like, no, I'm watching Cronenberg here. <laughs> so,
4: getting ready to star in Scanners, too. I love that little piece of trivia that you read afterwards. Yeah, exactly.
5: So <laughs> he, he just seems very, very kind of asexual to me. So the incestual relationship, I have a hard, bit of a hard time buying it myself. I think Mike might be onto something it just kind of a way to provoke Stanley or a way to test him kind of to see what his intentions are.
4: Why do you think he was having such sexual problem himself with the, because you said asexual, and I think you're right, but with the girl he, he does bring home, and they have, you know, about she wants to undress herself, and he's just kind of incapable. Is it is that, again, just because he's not really fully him? He needs to be with Pin. It seems to be, without pen he seems almost powerless to do anything in that scene. It's an interesting scene.
5: Yeah, I I'm not really I'm not really sure. I mean, he almost has a kind of same approach that his father does. Um, you know, his father kind of has when when gives them the, the talk and just kind of explains, well, there's a there's a need and and that's kind of I feel like his approach when he's talking with Ursula anyways throughout the rest of the film, oh, you have the need and you know, he's just he's not really it's not something he's experiencing personally. It's just something for other people almost.
3: Well, there's something that comes out, I think, a little bit more in the in the book than it does in the movie. But maybe it does in the movie, where it feels like it feels like Leon thinks that he and Ursula are better than everybody else in the world, and you know that whole idea of them having that little you know world unto themselves with just those two in Pin. It feels like. To me, anyway, that Leon thinks that this is right. You know, it should just be the three of us because we are the the almost like the chosen people, and anybody else that they interact with, it seems like he tends to do it with a little bit of disdain. So I don't know if that kind of carries through as far as that. You know, the the date that he has, where it's just like, oh, you know, this person, you know this this lower being compared to me.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, I can see that. Yeah I, yeah, I think I think you're right. Onto something there. It kind of reminds me of the characters from Six Feet Under, who were in a, a quasi incestuous relationship, Brenda and her brother, where they were kind of manipulated by their psychologist parents, and they seem to live in their own little world, and they had their own fantasy world, and sometimes even their own like speak to one another, and it, it feels a lot like that kind of thing where it's like you know these two on an island, and and nobody will ever be. Be able to experience the relationship that they do because they are just so close. Which is incest.
4: I mean, not sexual <laughs> incest, but it's a literal. It's almost like in this movie, even if he doesn't mean he wants to sleep with his sister, it's almost like him saying, but eventually we'll have to because we must breed. <laughs> because no one else can breed with her. <laughs> you know, it, it, That feels almost where it could lead to in the worst scenario.
3: I suppose emotional incest at this point. Yes. And eventually, yeah, the physical will come. So they can have their their own race of atomic super beings. Trumps. So I feel so bad for Stan when uh, they finally cook up the plan to get rid of him out of uh, Ursula's life. Because Stan has just hit me as such a good guy throughout this and that, you know, finally – Leon seems to have had enough, so they're gonna. uh, He and Pin cook up this plan where they're gonna poison him, knock him out, and throw him in the river.
4: Except for that that damn watch. That's the most like filmic uh, device that they use. The only thing that I'd say is close to being just generic is your classic watch moment where it beeps (laughs) on the hour.
3: And then yeah, that they put him in the wood pile and stuff. You know, here comes Ursula coming home early, so we're gonna put him in the wood pile. And that he's still alive is just the moment where I'm just like. Uh, okay. I guess that works.
4: (laughs) Now, was that the case in the book? Does he survive?
3: No, he does not survive. That makes more sense to me. Same kind of ending as far as Ursula coming in with the axe and destroying Pin, and then uh, Leon pretty much becoming Pin. But at the end of the day, she's screwed as far as... Now she's got no boyfriend. She's stuck at home, and then she's got her brother has become pin, so she she's not having a good time of it.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's for, I know it's for suspense for the twist of the film in a sense where he, he has become pin. Uh, that we don't see the actual destruction of Pin. It's an it's a great suspense moment, but there is that part of you that also just wants to see an axe, you know, smash that thing to pieces, you know, in this film at some point. It's uh, or at least an
3: extra feature. I'm sure they filmed it, right? Either smash Pin or smash Leon, I suppose.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that to me was the you know the ambiguity of who's who she, who does she gonna kill <laughs> it makes it interesting. Uh, in, in the end, she kind of didn't didn't really kill either
3: one. She just kind of helped them be one. Yeah, they really pretty much merge after that. All right, we're going to take a break and play a few interviews. First we'll hear from Kalen Vodestal, author of They Came From Within. Then we'll hear from director Sander Stern. Then author Andrew Niederman. And finally, actress Cynthia Preston. And we'll be back with those right after these important messages.
2: Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek on.
3: Found Item Clothing has everything to
7: proudly display your nerd love from Star Wars to Star Trek, from TMNT to
1: BTTF,
2: from S to XXL. And with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wider range of costumes from Snake Pliskin to Dude. From Snake Pliskin to the Dude. From Snake Pliskin to the
3: Dude and everything in between. And everything in between. Visit founditemclothing.com today.
1: Before it's too late.
6: Do you desire to add yet another entry in the endless legion of film review podcasts to your playlist? Can you not stand the thought of having any moment of your dull, pointless, waking life intruded upon with the sounds from the real world? ...and would prefer to listen to a small cast of assholes talk about movies. Then...
2: They must be destroyed on sight!
6: ...probably meets your bare minimum requirements. Join Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Ramelli, and the odd guest hosts... ...as they talk about films from every genre... ...ranging from the obscure and schlocky to the well-known top-dollar classics. Look for...
2: They must be destroyed on sight!
3: ...on iTunes podbean youtube and facebook that's
2: they must be destroyed on site
1: have you heard of the round table podcast here's how it works we invite authors onto the show. Welcome to the big chair at the round table, Sherry Priest, Tim Pratt, Gail Carriger, Seanan McGuire, Patrick Rothfuss. We ask them questions. One an excellent question. You know, no one's
0: ever asked me that question before.
1: Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Wow, no one's asked me that before. Then we invite writers on to present a story idea.
0: The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting.
3: It's a superhero western. It's
1: a steampunk diesel punk fusion just because of the timeline that it's in.
3: There's it a supernatural
1: horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller peppered into it. And then we workshop the story. You're gonna know what your ending is when you know what your conflict is. Brian, I like your I like your Sopranos meets mm-hmm. Iron Punk meets Rome meets psychotic future killers. I think that's that's a, a great mashup. Oh.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I can't believe I hadn't thought of that.
1: Sure. I think, I think that's, that's a must. I love that idea. And everyone leaves in a state of writerly bliss.
0: You guys have given me so much to work with right now. It's ridiculous.
3: And <laughs> the ideas that I've gotten out of this today, there's just... There's the gears are just running I've I've. (laughs) Spending this time with you guys has
1: made it a whole lot more likely that this will get written. The round table podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher radio, or at our website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. The round table podcast, literary alchemy, one podcast at a time.
3: Have you always been a film fan? I
6: have always been a film fan, yeah, from from day one. It's uh, uh, and and in particular horror movies, but uh, across the spectrum, I love I love movies in general, and uh, yeah, it's been that way since I don't know. I can't I can't remember a time I, I didn't like films.
3: So, what's your background? Are you primarily a writer?
6: I sort of divide my time equally between filmmaking and writing. I've made a lot of uh, music videos, documentaries, of uh, uh, one feature film, a lot of strange sort of film work. But but uh, yeah, I divide myself between that and writing.
3: Tell me about They Came From Within. What motivated you to write that?
6: I was working for the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, doing radio pieces and things for them. And I did a piece on Canadian horror films. You know, I'd, I'd been a, a fan of them, aware of them in various ways, certainly a David Cronenberg fan. But when I was digging, doing research for this piece, it just kept going. You know, there was so much. So I thought, well, I've got to do something bigger with this, and I just decided uh, a book was the was the form it should take.
3: Did anybody look at you askew when it came to Canadian horror films being even just that there were such things?
6: No, no one's gone so far as to look at me askew, but uh, people have have asked, you know. Well, I didn't know, you know. They they say, well, well I've heard of David Cronenberg, and then uh, they don't know beyond that. It's usually a surprise to Larry Lunchbox or Joe Punchclock or whoever you're talking to that uh prom night is Canadian, that it's happy birthday to me, those kind of things. They they weren't aware that they were Canadian and, and I don't blame them because those movies they work extra hard to I mean, I've always said that if you, the more American mailboxes and American flags you see in the movie, the more sure you can be, it's Canadian. They work pretty hard to look American.
3: Now, were these part of the quote unquote tax shelter films?
6: Most of them, yeah. The tax shelter concept was, you know, to uh, uh, an idea to juice the Canadian film industry and get it going. And uh, it was it was up and running for the, the the rules were in place for a few years before the tax shelter years we all know and love. Really got going, uh, but a lot of yeah I mean there were, there were more films I think it was the films the the sheer number of films being made in Canada at that time is pretty mind boggling it was up there with hollywood Bollywood I mean they were making hundreds and hundreds of films per year in Canada from nineteen seventy eight through eighty one or so the sort of those were the peak years i would I would say and it it is amazing how much it actually did work, but then of course, when there's a lot of money floating around that brings in uh, a lot of questionable practices, a lot of corruption, and that's certainly what happened. People were making uh, lousy movies. I mean, you know, most of those movies are not too good. A lot of the money wasn't really going on the screen; and it was going into various pockets. So it was uh, it was doomed to to extinction eventually. But it did produce some gems.
3: Now, when it comes to the Canadian tax shelter stuff, like those films, I imagine those are being primarily made by non-Canadians. Is that a pretty fair assumption?
6: There's a point system to it. Uh, You know, a certain number of, certainly the actors and, and primary people had to be Canadian. A lot of the directors of those movies were Canadian. You know, the director of Prom Night, the director of My Bloody Valentine, those were all Canadians. So a surprising number of the creative, the key creative personnel were Canadian. But not always. I mean, frequently, that, that wasn't the case. Sandor Stern, who directed Pin, of course, was Canadian, but we'll get to that later, I guess.
3: Actually, it's funny because we are covering two Canadian films in October, one being Pin and the other one being Killer Party, which I believe was also part of the, the Canadian wave.
6: It certainly is, yeah. And uh, Bill Fruitt, who directed that, uh, very much Canadian and certainly a, a beneficiary of the, of
3: the tax shelter.
6: Years, although not, not always a willing one, but or a happy one. But there he was. That that made his career uh, in a lot of ways.
3: Now, as you're going through and you're looking at all of these Canadian films, I mean, I'm sure that you were familiar with quite a few of these before you decided that you're going to do this project, probably even well before you're doing the radio piece on it.
6: I had grown up watching all of them, yeah. I, and I was aware that most of them were Canadian. You know, I was interested in that as I'm not by any stretch a nationalist, but there's a certain sort of, you know, hey, we can do that kind of thing too aspect to it, so I was a little bit proud that a lot of these crappy movies were Canadian, and uh, of course proud of the, like legitimately proud of the good ones. I had seen almost all of them beforehand because I I just devoured them in the video stores you know, in the 80s.
3: Is there a kind of a, a feeling of Canadianness, or is there something inherently Canadian about these films that you would see in these particular movies that you wouldn't necessarily see from something being produced, I don't know, in um, Utah or California?
6: Yes, I mean, uh, that's the short answer. Uh, not necessarily to the casual viewer. Uh, the casual viewer wouldn't necessarily notice a, a, a pattern or anything, but the the aforementioned... American mailboxes and American flags. I mean, that's, that's a a joke, but not really because it's actually true. A lot of them, as Cronenberg and other people have pointed out, the funding, uh, for these things was such that, uh, by late in the year, people would realize, oh, I've got, I've got money I want to hide from, from the tax man. I'd better invest it in one of these, these things. So the money kind of piled up toward the end of the year and a lot of these things got shooting around uh, October, November, December. So they all have this kind of bleak, wintry look, early winter look, you know, skeletal trees and gray skies and so forth. There's a certain sound quality as well, or lack of quality, you might call it. I don't know what it was. I don't know why Canadians weren't quite able to crack the, the science of sound recording. And also, um, in the eighties, seventies, eighties, Even into the 90s, most of these films were processed at the same lab in uh, Toronto. And I have been told by cinematographer friends that there was a colorist there who just had a thing for the color blue. He liked blue, and so he he tended to crank up the blue in a lot of these films. And so you know, since they all go through this same lab and this same thing, they all end up getting kind of the same look. And uh, so there's that.
3: More than the American flag window dressing, these kind of things, is there a theme that kind of ties all these together? Or are there themes that kind of come out, do you think, based upon where these are being made or the people that are making them?
6: Not not that you can really pound nails into. It's more a case-by-case sort of a thing. I mean, the the provenance of a lot of these movies was American. A lot of them were, as William Fruitt pointed out to me, uh, projects that had not been able to find funding in the States. There were two crappy or they were just too weird maybe or too something. So they came up to Canada. So the themes were already in there, you know, from from whoever had written them. On the other hand, what's done with those themes can get a little bit specifically Canadian. There's less Puritanism, I guess. That does come out in pin, the way the girl isn't, uh, you know, slut-shamed like she would be necessarily and mean, maybe would be I don't want to pass dispersions on American films by any stretch, but there is often a kind of a, of that era anyway. She's promiscuous in the, in the, in the movie, but she doesn't really get, you know, she gets shamed by Leon, but, uh, not really by the film itself, which is a crucial difference. And I don't know that that would be the case if it was made in,
3: in the States totally agree. When I was watching Pin the very first time, I kept thinking by the end of the film that she would be dead, because there is that tendency to punish women in films, at least from the U.S., and so when she survived to the end, I was really shocked.
6: Well, there is is that aspect. I think you have to admit that there is the uh, punishment for being sexually active. It does come up in, in a lot of these movies, and just a little bit less so in Canadian ones. I don't want to say we're all like, you know, have always been always super accommodating and progressive and everything, but uh, a little bit more.
3: Well, I would say even more than that, even that she is desired by her brother would, in some instances, that would cause her to be punished, even though it's not her fault at all. But just that she has been desired in this taboo relationship seems like she might have been cursed.
6: It's true, yeah. She does seem destined for for a... a story end, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's Pin who has the
3: crush on her. Now you named the book that came from within, and obviously there's a lot of body horror and and ideas of things coming from the inside. Especially when you look at the works of Cronenberg. Where else do you see that kind of coming into play?
6: The title came from actually, it's the American title for shivers. Of course, they came from within, which is a little private joke of mine that I would I would name a book about Canadian horror movies the name that, I think, Samuel Z. Arkoff decided to call uh, the first Cronenberg feature. And the the theme of things coming from within rather than, you know, from uh, space aliens or things like that is a constant in Canadian films. And I think that's probably, I mean, that's, I think, one reason why slasher movies were so enthusiastically uh, embraced by Canadians in the tax shelter years not only because they were cheap to make i mean that was a big factor of course but because that that the notion that something inside of you that you can't control just snaps and goes crazy is is especially terrifying to canadians because there's a certain amount of self-control and pride in that self-control that i think is a national characteristic uh, so that's especially frightening the the concept that you could just lose it and not be in control anymore Certainly, it seems to be terrifying to to Cronenberg, where oh, I mean, it's usually not psychological so much as scientific in his case,
3: but uh, still, it's there. When it came to these Canadian films, were most of them being shot in Toronto, or were they shot in other places as well?
6: The bulk of the Canadian movies were shot in Toronto, but there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of activity in Quebec, uh, specifically in Montreal, and um, there were movies. Alberta was fairly active. Uh, Vancouver was a little bit active, although not as much as you would think given there, you know, there's a uh, you can make uh, films year-round there because the climate is so uh, temperate. But Toronto just simply was the was the largest place, I guess, and it was where studios and labs and all those things you need to make films were were had been built first. So that's where the action was, yeah, for the most part.
3: Now I've talked to a handful of filmmakers from Winnipeg, now including yourself, were any of these films being shot in Winnipeg as well?
6: Uh, sadly, no. Um, the closest, I mean, in, in terms of tax shelter years, um, and there was a movie here made uh, made here uh, in Winnipeg called Autumn Bo- Autumn Born is what it was called, starring Dorothy Stratton, made in nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine. Otherwise, no. Uh, I made it my mission for a little while. I've not quite given up on it, but it's, it's gone onto the back burner to make Winnipeg a, uh, a horror movie capital, a horror movie production capital. For a while, it looked like it could happen. I think it's ideal in the way that Detroit is now a horror movie capital. But uh, no, at the time, no, they missed a bet, I think, there.
3: You have worked many, many years with Guy Madden, or as he's known in Montreal, Guy Madden. How did you two get together?
6: I was uh, taking courses from film courses at the University of Manitoba from George Tolls, who was a friend of is a friend of Guy's and and wrote uh, a lot of his movies. I entered I sort of entered a contest a filmmaking contest held by some organization whose name I can't quite remember the Academy of Canadian Motion Pictures or something. You had to send in a short film and they would the the, the prize was your salary would be paid to work on a film. In other words, you could go to a producer and say, hire me because you don't have to pay me. My film won. I later found out that I was the only one who'd entered. So it was a great victory. The only film shooting that summer, I think, was Careful. So I went to the producer of Careful and said, hey, hire me. And uh, they said, uh, well, we'll hire you for pre-production and production and everything since we don't have to pay you. can just..." And so I worked for... A long summer on, uh, careful and got to know Guy, and and uh, ever since then I've yeah I've become his biographer and worked on a lot of his films and, and we're just friends yeah.
3: Can you tell me about some of your documentary work?
6: I made I've made a lot of uh, a lot of small things for the CBC, but I've made I guess a larger the largest film I made the largest documentary film I made was uh, a film about Bigfoot. There was a Bigfoot sighting here in Manitoba. Quite a an important one as these things go. A guy got a fairly, you know, for a Bigfoot film, it was a fairly clear Bigfoot film he he videotaped a shaggy figure uh, in the woods, and it became a big deal. Not just locally, but uh, it, was, it was it got onto American TV and it sort of changed this guy's life. He was from a small northern community. So the documentary was partially about that, uh, about the actual sighting and uh, and partially about just simply how it affected this guy's life because it totally changed his life. So it was a big, um, it was a big film. It was, uh, I got a chance to recreate a whole bunch of Bigfoot sightings and got a, got a Bigfoot costume made by a special makeup effects guy and shot a whole bunch of stuff on, you know, 16 mil Bigfoot footage, went to LA and got, uh, oh, it was, it was quite a big uh, film actually. And, turned out to be a, a big TV hit. I made a bunch of music documentaries. I made a big tour documentary for a band called The Weaker Thans, a Winnipeg band that's really good, and um, other things like
3: that, yeah. Just all sorts, all over the map. As you are doing your research for uh, "They came from within, are you just watching the movies? Are you, are you researching how the films were made? What, what was your kind of process when it came to that?
6: There was an awful lot of movie-watching, of course, and re-watching uh, in in most cases, but there were a lot of trips to Toronto to various uh, archives and, and libraries, and um, as many interviews as I could track down and, and fit in. I had uh, a, long, a nice long interview with William Fruitt, who's a great guy. Uh, I don't know if you'll get a chance to speak to him about uh, Killer Party for your Killer Party episode, but it's worth it. He's a good guy. He's from uh, Alberta originally. He got, I mean, he became, I won't say famous, but he he, he got into the industry by writing. Uh, specifically, he wrote a movie called Going Down the Road, which is, a, a, you know, if the Tragically Hip were a movie, that would, be, that would be them. It's the most Canadian thing ever made. And he, so it's this classic of Canadiana, routinely is number one in, you know, when, when people compile, or number two, when people compile Best Canadian Movie Lists. And it is a great movie. And then he, um, he got some, some acclaim for that. And then he moved on to a film called Wedding in White, which he wrote and directed. And that was another very sort of serious work. Um, Donald Pleasance was in it, Carol Kane, uh, and it was, um, you know, not a horror movie by any stretch, but it, but certainly horrific because it's about, uh, rape and, and, and all sorts of unsavory things. And so he was kind of, he was poised for, uh, some kind of career, but this was the early seventies. And, you know, uh, it was, it was tough to make a living in Canadian film at that time. It still, still is, but at at that time particularly. So what he did was he cast his mind back to an experience he'd had, uh, in Alberta where he was driving and he got, there was some kind of, uh, some guys were following him and throwing beer bottles and, and it looked like a dicey situation. Like he was uh, Going to get run off the road. I'm not exactly sure what the situation was, but it was frightening to him, and he remembered that, and he wrote that up as a as a kind of a horror movie, a rape revenge movie, which ended up being Death Weekend, and that movie got him essentially excommunicated from the, in quotation marks, serious Canadian uh, film industry, because it was it was a pretty unsavory movie. Again, rape features heavily in it, and. and uh, but this time it was a horror movie. It's, it's unfair <laughs> for the poor guy to have his career pushed off the road in this way. I mean, but but yeah, he couldn't find work after that for a long time. It was he got th- these reviews, uh, the reviews that he got tore a strip off of him, and he was um, no longer able to do anything but genre movies. And even then, it was difficult. But he. Uh, so that's what he was kind of stuck in horror movies after that. Although he didn't seem to mind that so much when I spoke to him. He wasn't bitter at all. You know, some people are very bitter about they They go into horror movies. Even John Carpenter and people like that, you hear that bitterness sometimes. He seemed to accept it and uh, went on to make. I think he's a very, he's quite an underrated director, actually. His work is, the movies aren't always good, but there's always this sort of professionalism and solidity to his directing and, uh, that, that he, Don't find in so many of those the films on the same level. He's got a couple. He's got a good, you know, crazy Vietnam veteran movie. The title of which is escaping me right now. But he's also got a good backwoods kind of deliverance style movie. And the reason I can't remember the titles is because they all have like three or four different titles, blood and guts and stuff like that. Yeah, generic sort of increasingly generic titles. But anyway, he's uh, he made a, a, a pretty interesting career for himself, I would say. And it, it, when when I was speaking to him, he was trying to put together a, a kind of a family comedy that he said was just like uh, my big fat Greek wedding, only uh, Italian rather than Greek. But I don't think that was ever made.
3: You said that one of his movies is the number two movie, Canadian movie. What's the number one?
6: Uh, the number one Canadian movie ever. Uh, as far as the critics' lists are concerned, is probably Mon Oncle Antoine, a Quebec movie from the early 70s, I
3: think. Very good movie. I'm just glad it wasn't Airbud.
6: I I never think of that as a Canadian movie, but I guess it is. I guess we have to take that and Celine Dion and Justin Bieber.
3: You got Shatner, so you win.
6: Yeah, true enough.
3: And when it comes to uh, the film Pin, what did you learn about that as you were doing your research?
6: Uh, My friends and I were Stephen King fanatics in... In junior high, when we were teenagers, and uh, when we ran out of Stephen King books to read, we were looking for books that he had blurbed, which is not hard because he was handing out, you know, blurbs like a dentist hands out toothbrushes for a long time. But one of the movies, or one of the books he, he put his, he gave his uh, laudatory quotes to was Pin by Andrew Niederman. And I remember reading that and thinking it was, it was pretty good. It was disturbing and it was, uh very solidly written. I don't remember much about it because I read it about thirty years ago, but uh, I do remember liking it. So when the movie came along, I uh, was interested and watched that. and um and then and then I, I slowly started to realize, and this is even before writing the book, that there was a, a a kind of a cult around the movie. A lot of people had seen it little groups of like friends I would meet later. It turned out that had been this very important movie for them in their in their high school years, and they would Go around quoting like quoting or doing Pin's voice and going hide the body in the woodpile and uh, things like that to each other and so that was that was the first thing I would call a I would say is a bit of a revelation is that there was this uh, cult life to the movie and from there I I didn't discover too much that was that that was that interesting because it was. Made in a fairly conventional way. Almost everything you can discover about the movie is in the is in the uh, director's commentary on the DVD, which you've probably listened to. It's kind of uh, when you write books like They Came from Within or, or anything like that. The director's commentaries are are sort of a. I mean, they're good and bad. They're good because you can learn all this information, but they're bad because everyone else learns the exact same information, and that leaves nothing to ask the directors uh, when you when, when and if you talk to them. So I didn't go on to speak to Sandor Stern personally, because I didn't uh, think there was anything else he had left out. I mean, there's not going to be some great story that he totally forgot to tell in the director's commentary, I guess. But I do know that it was shot in, in Quebec, and there was a lot of, not a lot, but but some disagreement between Stern and the producers in, in, in as far as how horrific the movie should be. I mean, they... Which seems is curious to me because of course they were working from this book by Andrew Niederman. So everything I mean the movie should have been it should have been fairly apparent to everyone what the movie was going to be from that, you would think. To the investors, to the producers and so forth. Of course, producers as they as they as is their want, call for, you know, more blood, more tits, all the rest of it. So the movie became maybe a little bit more a little stranger from that. People who talk about Pin, and I don't know what your opinion on the movie is, but uh, a lot of people think it's just—you know—it's the craziest, most twisted, sickest movie they've ever seen. I've never quite understood that. I mean, it does have some slightly disturbing bits to it—the nurse scene, of course—but uh, it's never seemed to me that crazy and twisted. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly sedately made. I, I, I have to admit that I, the first time I saw it, I was just—I was rooting for Pin to come alive and just you know, start striding around and knifing people or something like that. And I kind of still kind of wish it was that sort of, of a movie. But, uh, you know, that's a different that's a different film, I guess. I don't blame Sandra Stern for not making that movie, but I kind of wish he had.
3: Yeah, when he kind of gets his hair and the face and everything, I'm yeah. just like, okay, well, this is the next step in the evolution. And yeah, the next one will be movement, but
6: no. Well, he sits up in the back of the car and that that's, as close as we we ever get I guess but yeah but that i mean there' it's an arresting image that when he's got the, the the wig and the and the face on and everything that was my that my computer desktop for a long time was that picture
3: so you're writing a book about horror movies from canada that were made mostly you know eventually in the era of videotape and really founded their live on uh, lives on videotape were there any films that were Particularly difficult for you to track down as you were doing your research?
6: There were some films that were very hard to track down. Um, I had some real help from a friend of mine, a director called Dave Dakota, who's made uh, hundreds of movies. And um, he's American, but he's, he's got a real fixation on uh, Canadian horror films. I think he lives in Canada now. He, he sort of bounces around, he has his Canadian citizenship and so forth. So he's a, he's a bit of a, a canuckophile like whenever i sort of complained would complain to him that i was having trouble finding a movie he would just suddenly be able to produce it some you know taped off of tv kind of video vhs would, would land in my mailbox or something like that so um and there were some others some i had to get from the directors themselves i had to borrow uh jerry chicaridi uh is a director who made uh, he made the night shift movies the, the you know vampire cabby movies, or Graveyard Shift, pardon me, Graveyard Shift, not Night Shift. Um, he made Graveyard or graveyard Shift, and, but he also made a movie about uh, killer twin sisters, Psycho Girls, it was called, that I had to go to his house and, you know, pull from his mailbox and stuff like that. Some of the older films, The Mask was not hard to find, that's Canada's very first horror film. I think I tracked all of them down eventually. Uh, I do have to confess that by the end, there was I had a bit of a thousand-yard stare you know, from watching all these movies, because uh, it, it has to be admitted that many of them are just not very good.
3: Whenever somebody tackles something of that scope, I'm so glad that it's you doing it and not me doing it. It's
6: like a public service. I, I started one, and I got quite far along, uh, a, a teen sex comedy book. And that, I mean, that's not a genre I gravitate towards naturally. I, uh, that one was kind of the opposite of the Canadian horror movie book because I, I'd seen Porkies and I'd seen, you know, the, the bigger ones in my teen years, but I, I just so many of them I just ignored. So now I have a basement full of the things. I've watched them all. I, I wrote chapter after chapter and then finally I just had to walk away because it was, it was, it was doing nasty things, you know, to my soul. But right now, I'm uh, just finishing a biography of uh, Dick Miller, and it's a real pleasure to watch all of Dick Miller's movies, and there's a lot of them.
3: I mean, how many movies has he been in?
6: Oh, gosh. Well, if you count you know, TV episodes and stuff, he's been, been in a couple of hundred things, um, 150 of which are are features, probably, something like that. I haven't actually counted, I suppose I should, before the end of the project, but, but I've seen just about all of them.
3: Wow, that's fantastic! He is so
6: great. Yeah, he's really—he's always been my favorite actor.
3: Now, is he helping you with that? Oh,
6: very much. I was—I've been—I was down in L.A. Uh, a lot, um, going to his house and hanging out. And, and uh, there, he's a wonderful guy. His wife is a wonderful person. No, they're—they're they're very, very helpful. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you so much, sir, for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
6: Well, likewise, it's been a great pleasure for me too.
3: How did you get into writing, and specifically writing for television?
6: I fell in love
7: with writing when I was a teenager, and I wanted to uh, write plays. Uh, when, I fe- when I graduated high school, um, I had already sent uh, some short stories into Montreal Star, and I had a really good English teacher, and um, decided that I was going to take honor English and history at, uh, at Queen's University in Kingston, because I would teach and then I would have the summers to write just before school started. um, I went up to Toronto where my, my dad's family was, and I had dinner with my uncle who was a doctor and he said to me, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, why would you want to learn about life from books? Why don't you, instead of becoming an observer, become a participant, go into medical school? You know, where else are you going to have these life and death experiences? And I thought that was a great idea. So I switched to medicine, um, sold my first script while I was still in medical school. And when I graduated, I went into practice. And while I was practicing, I was still writing. Uh, I was selling my stuff to the CBC and gradually, I was earning enough money as a writer, I could start cutting back on my medical practice. I cut out obstetrics and I cut out pediatrics. And uh eventually got to a point where I was earning enough money that I could just get, rid- get out of medicine altogether.
3: What was working with the CBC like in those days?
7: It was good. I, I, I worked in, you know, in two, two different areas of the CBC. I worked in, in drama and i also worked in variety i mean actually i started out uh doing variety because i was writing uh for music hop which was a which was a uh a show on the cbc that was you know was, that was uh shown across the country and uh it was uh, we had our own band and we had our own host and we had our own uh, actually we had our own uh, singing group on it, uh the Willows they were called. I went from there to writing uh late night shows for them and then from there I went to writing specials like the Gordy Lightfoot special and uh and I wrote the uh the special for the uh Canadian Centennial. Originally, um I was just sending scripts into the drama department and they kept telling me you know, we like it, but it's, you know, it's not visual enough. For television, try radio. Well, I grew up on radio, and so dialogue was what well, you know interested me, and, and that's why I wanted to be a playwright. But when I got to Toronto, I realized that uh, there were very few theaters, uh, and there was this whole new thing at that time, television. They were doing television drama. So I uh, found myself a book at a uh, bookstore uh, on how to write for television, read it, and then started writing. And uh kept sending it in to the C B C and and uh <laughs> interestingly enough, um uh I was doing an externship at Mount Sinai Hospital the the summer before my final year of medical school and I was working in the emergency department and this man came in, uh, he was, he had coughed up some blood and, and, uh, I looked at his chart and he is, and he was Max Cohen. he was from Montreal. And I said, are you M. Charles Cohen, the writer? And he said, yes. And I knew his work very well. He was a very prestigious writer at the time. And anyway, he was fine. He didn't have any major problem. We had coffee afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, I told him about what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And, he said, uh, you know what, send me send me the the script that you think is the best thing you've written, and uh, I'll give you an honest opinion. So I sent it to him in Montreal and didn't hear anything for a few weeks, figured, oh, he probably forgot all about me, and then one day I got a phone call from the CBC from a guy named Dave Petty, who was running at that time the drama department, and he said, oh, Mexico sent me a script, and I like it, and uh, why don't you come in, let's talk. So I did that, and he didn't have, he didn't have a place for that script, but they were starting a whole new series. Um, this, the BBC at that time had a, had a, uh, half hour medical series called Emergency Ward 10. And, uh, and the CBC wanted to do a Canadian version. I did a couple of episodes with a friend of mine. The series never went because the CBC decided that it was cheaper for them to just, <laughs> just to show the, the BBC version. But anyway, you know, it got me in the door. That's how I started writing drama there.
3: And when did you decide to make the move to Los Angeles and try your hand at the, the networks in the States?
7: I got a call from an agent at the William Morris Agency. This is after I'd had a few uh, dramas uh, produced in Canada. And he called me out of New York and said, you know, I'm handling the, you know, the Canadian uh, end of our business. And I'd love to come up and talk to you so I said fine and I wasn't interested in coming to the States and I certainly didn't need an agent in Canada because everybody knew who I was but he said look you know you got nothing to lose you may decide to change your mind and if you do you t- decide to come to the States you'll have an agent so I said okay fine and they you know they, we signed a contract where they didn't take any of my Canadian money and I was fine with that I was supposed to do a uh, variety show a variety special and everything was all set up to do it and i went to miami i took my my family down to miami at christmas time um and i got a call from uh the cbc that said they decided they were not going to do the show they were canceling it all right and i came back and they wouldn't give me any explanation they just said they weren't they weren't they weren't going to do it so i just thought screw that and i called the agent in new york and said i'm going down to la and he set me up with a an agent uh, at the William Morris agency in LA. I got to LA and uh, met the, met the agent um, Sylvia Hirsch. And uh, she said, Oh, uh, NBC is, is doing a new series, uh, a medical series uh, called the bold ones. Uh, we're, you know, would you be interested? I said, sure. Um, and uh, so she, she called uh, the producer while I was in her office and, and she said, "I got a writer from Canada who's also direct, also a doctor. Are you interested?" And he said, "Does he have any story ideas?" And I lied. <laughs> I said, "Yes, I do." So he he said, "Oh, tell him to come over right now." So I got in the car, and you know, it was a half hour from Beverly Hills out to Universal Studios. And uh, uh, during that half hour, I came up with a story, walked in, pitched it, and sold it. That was yeah. That was the start.
3: Television. Was just it was such a booming business, um, especially back then. At least that's how I saw it, anyway. Especially having not only just television series, but the the movies of the week. It seemed like you really kind of uh, dove in head first because looking at your CV, you just have so many credits, especially during the early seventies.
7: Well, I you know I was very fortunate because I think probably the seventies and eighties were the very best time for television, uh, for writers, especially here. Um, and, and the movies of the week, there were, all, you know, there were three networks. I mean, Fox was, you know, Fox began, but they, you know, they had a, a limited number of primetime hours. And the uh, movies of the week were a big thing. I mean, there was something like 200 movies a year being done. So uh, there was, you know, plenty of opportunity. And there weren't that many writers in those days, you know. I mean, uh, um, today, I, it's ridiculous. There's so many because everybody wants to be, you know, in the entertainment business. But in those days, I mean, when I was doing, for example, um, you know, I started out writing episodic and then I got a chance to story edit and I story edited Doc Elliott. And then off of that, I got a chance to produce Mod Squad. And then from there, I went to Doc Elliott and because of when I was on Doc Elliott, you know I had a contract to, you know to get ten scripts together and you know when they tested them the first couple of scripts you know they, they that were produced they tested very well so they decided to expand and when they decided to expand uh, you know they I wasn't contracted for that, so they wanted me to stay on so I said, okay you know well, let me direct an episode and they said okay, and that's how I started directing
3: How was that transition for you
7: yeah it was really it was really easy I remember When I was producing uh, uh, Mod Squad, uh, you know, when we would rap at night, you know, the guys would gather in the office, we'd have a drink, and I remember the production manager saying to me, What, you know, what, what, you know, what are you interested in doing? And I said, Well, I'd like to direct. He said, Oh, man. He said, Really? He said, Jesus, that is so, you know, directing. Doesn't that scare you? All the technical stuff you need to know. And I said, Excuse me? I've operated people, for God's sake. I said, Why would that? Why would that bother me? I said, first of all, you hire the best cameraman, the best art director, the best assistant director. you got all these people helping you, best editors. You know, what do I have to do? You know, I just have to know how, uh, know story and know what I want from the actors. Yeah, that's it. Get the best actors, and that's how you do it so then you know from that episode that I did uh on doc Elliot um uh, I, I went uh, I went on to produce a couple of uh movies and then uh and then I hit one that I sold myself to the network and I asked them if I could direct it and they said, sure, so I directed and that was you know that was uh maggobo Mary that was my first and and after that, it was on
3: my way. What was one of your first feature film screenplays? Was that Fast Break?
7: I did Amityville and Fast Break at the same time, in the same year.
3: That's a pretty good year.
7: That was a good year. That was a very good year, yeah. Very good year.
3: And so what was that transition for you to go from uh, television now into feature films?
7: It wasn't difficult because it was, I was already doing Movies of the Week, you know, writing. And I had I had done a couple of feature screenplays you know i mean like i did one for cbc features or cbs features for example i was still in canada and uh was an adaptation of a novel which they loved but you know and they never they went out of the feature film business and then eventually it went over to fox and uh uh, and it just it never got made um but everybody loved the script so it was a good piece for me as a sample of my work Amityville, that came, uh, that came through a, a relationship that I had with Jay Anson. I was going to do a, a TV movie, uh, for the, the, the guys, uh, who, who were, who owned the, the company that he worked for in New York. And I went up there to do research and that's where I met Jay. And he at that time was, was doing, uh, Amityville, uh, the book. He then, called me because his agent sold the book to cbs as a feature uh, as a tv movie he wanted to know what kind of money he should ask for etc cetera, etc cetera. you know i helped him out with that and the next thing that happened is that they went to sam Markov and uh sam Markov wanted to do it as a feature and so he he went to cbs and said look let me do it as a feature and you will have first showing of it for television so they made the deal And uh, they allowed Jay to write the first draft uh, uh, feature, which he did. And then they brought in another writer, you know, to to write it. And they weren't happy with that script. Jay said to me, would you take a look at it? You know, and I said, sure. So I read the script and I said, you know, I can I I see what the problems are. Right. You know, just looking at it. So he had uh, Sam Arkoff's company called me and I went in for a meeting and, you know, they said, "Okay, we know we got a problem with the script. What is it? I said it's not scary enough, you know? I mean, it's this it's just not a scary script. I mean, this is a script. This is a this is a uh, the story about things that go bump in the night. Nothing really happens, but it's got to be very, very scary. The only way that you're going to you only way you're going to sell an audience on this is that you can't allow these people to be stupid enough to stay in a house in which they're having all these terrible things happen to them, right? So the only way that that can ha- that, that that they're going to stay is that things that happen happen to them individually, out of sight from somebody else, and they never compare notes. It, it takes a long time for them till like they finally realize, wait a minute, something awful's going on here, and then they get the hell out. Which is why the you know for God's sake get out. People you know would watch the movie and at least they realize that oh boy, I mean. You know, she doesn't know she. You know, she's having this experience, but her husband's not, and so and the kids are not. So that's the way it was done. And I rewrote it, and I ended up getting the sole screenplay credit.
3: Now, when you rewrote it, did you make up the scares whole cloth, or did you go back to the original book, or how did you do that?
7: Some of the scares were whole cloth, but in the original book, uh, you know, they they would say something happened, and, and my job was to make sure that whatever was going to happen was scary enough. For the audience, but at the same time, was not scary enough early on to, to scare these people out of the house because there's uh, there's no mo- there's no story there's no movie right. So that you know that that was the job.
3: Did you find that once you started directing, did your writing change at all to take on how that director might think or or how you might think as uh, as a director?
7: No, not really, because one of the reasons I wanted to direct is that in most cases I wasn't happy with the, with the way this, my script was being directed. And that's the reason I wanted to direct, because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be in control of what I did. I don't think I changed that, that I changed that, uh, when I started directing, because I knew exactly how I wanted a scene to play out. I think the thing that changed my writing and, 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 and to be honest with you, you know, I, I was looking over some of this, my early writing, uh, recently and, and I, and I realized I was a better writer then than I am now. You know, I really, I mean, I, I, look at the style and this is really good stuff. And I learned that lesson when I started writing, uh, for the bold ones and for Ironside here. And I remember I had a meeting, uh, with Cy Chermack, who was exec producer, And he says, Sandy, you know, we love your scripts. It's terrific writing, but you don't write television uh, scripts. You write mini movies, you know, and for our budget, it's tough for us because, you know, for us to do a scene that runs two or three eighths of a page. Right. It's too costly. And the other thing that would go first, I recognize soon was the humor, because I always like to have humor. I always like to have. Somebody uh, or some scene in there, you know, that had a sense of humor to it. The first thing they would cut would be that, especially for time. They said, well, you know, we're running too long. Let's cut this scene. Let's cut this scene. So they would start cutting that kind of stuff, or they cut, you know, the the two or three eighths of a page scene, put them all together. And as time went on, I think it got kind of lazy, and I thought, I'm tired of fighting this crap. You know, I'm just going to go ahead and you know, and and deal with it up front. So it affected my writing in that way.
2: What
3: was Stuart Rosenberg like to work with?
7: I didn't work with Stuart. I never even met Stuart. The one thing that that directors uh, and producers, for example, are not interested in is that once the script has been turned in, they're not interested in the writer anymore. They're not interested in hearing from him, seeing him. Very rarely do do would, would I ever get a director, unless I was producing, of course. Because then I was the boss, but, you know, other than that, no. And I, so I never met Stuart. Um, um, to be honest with you, I wasn't really crazy about the, you know, the, the way it was directed, the uh, Amityville was directed for one simple reason. The, the, the crux of the movie, uh, w- was that, uh, that this guy, um, during the course of what happens to him, he has cabin fever and he goes crazy. Well, unfortunately, um, I felt, you know, I felt bad for for Roland because he was pretty almost crazy in the first couple of scenes, you know. So he had nowhere to go. He had not, you know, nowhere, to, uh, nothing could be developed. And, and, and I didn't like that. To be honest with you, I had the same problem uh, uh, with The Shining. Because that was one I thought was one of King's best, very best books. Uh And it was about cabin fever. This guy goes up there and, you know, and he's isolated and he, he you know, he goes up there to be a writer. He doesn't go up there nuts. But Jack Nicholson was nuts in the first, the very first interview when he went to work. He said, there's something wrong with this guy. So he had nowhere to go. And that's so that bothered me for The Shining, and it bothered me for the Amityville Horror, too. So I would have liked to have seen it, it paced for the actor, you know, for the character.
3: How did uh, Pin come to you?
7: Pin came to me, uh, oh gosh, I guess it was in around 1984 or 1985. I knew joe Gottler, the agent joe Gottler, was a friend and you know and i said to him look if you you know if you if you you know he was a literary agent so i said well you know if you get find anything you know that you can pass my way i'd be interested so he sent me pin andrew Niderman's book at the time andrew Niderman was uh was still a teacher uh in uh south fallsburg new york anyway i love the book and uh you know, I optioned it from, from him. I met him and his wife and his kids. And he's my, you know, he's probably one of my two closest friends now. We, you know, we've been, we've been friends for many years now. But, um, I, I remember, um, I was coming back from Toronto, um, and I happened to sit beside Pierre David on the plane. And we started talking, and I told him, you know, that I just finished the script. He said, let me read it, right? Because he had a deal at Universal. So I gave it to him, and he couldn't get a universal interested in it, so he sort of just dropped it. And then a few years later, I was up in Toronto directing a, a TV movie, and René Malot was the Canadian producer on it. And we got to be friendly, and he asked me if I had anything. So I gave him *Pin to read, which he loved. Uh, I, got, I came back to to L A, and I it's a couple of months later or so. There um, was there was a there was this, uh, a uh, uh, a cocktail party at the embassy uh, for you know, for Canadian for the Canadians in the entertainment business. So I decided to go, and I went there, and I I saw Pierre, and I was talking to Pierre, and up comes Renee, and he said to Pierre, he said, this guy has got this terrific script called Pin. And Pierre said, oh, I read that script. I love that script. And René said, let's do it. Well, I didn't realize at that time that they had just formed a partnership. And so five years later, we made the movie.
3: Now, I know you've done a lot of adaptations before when it comes to uh, novel to screen. How do you typically... Uh, approach that? Do you just kind of look for the the most visual scenes, and and then kind of tell the story from there, or, or what's your method?
7: I look for the characters. I look for the conflict. That's what interests me because for me, that you know, that's what a story is. A story is you know, colorful, consistent, colorful characters in conflict, uh, leading to confrontation and. Uh, Climax and change; those are all the the the, the many Cs that I the way I approach a, you know a story. For me, with Pin, for example, what I loved is the fact that I was dealing with very obvious mental illness, and as a physician, I I thought, well, this is just terrific, you know, to do it this way because that's you know this kid is just he, the you know this poor kid is schizophrenic. She's being brought up in a household that. If you stood on the outside, you say, wow, what a great household this kid has, right? Except he's got two loony parents. And the visual for me, uh, more than anything, you know, was pin. I mean, this was an inanimate object. It hadn't, you know, it, 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 it did not come to life in any way. The idea of a, a, a an anatomical dummy being used in the way it was being used, uh, that really intrigued me.
3: I haven't really experienced one of those. I've I've seen like this very small anatomical kind of creations like that. I've never seen one life-size like that. Now, you being a medical profession or, or a former medical professional, had you encountered those before?
7: Oh, sure. In medical school, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
3: It's so creepy.
7: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is creepy. Well, now of course they've got them where they can, you know, they actually, actually, you can take out various organs and so on. You know, I mean, they're just the, that's the way they're put together.
3: What was your experience like making the film?
7: It was a great experience. It was, it was really a great experience. I loved, uh, I love Montreal. I loved my cast, and uh, I, I just enjoyed my time there. I must tell you though, since I was going up to Montreal. Um, I thought, well, I, you know, I better brush up my French because I, you know, I only I, I had a couple of years of French, and so I'm studying French. And I get up there, right? And first of all, the entire crew speaks English, and the only time they ever speak French is when they're talking to each other, and they speak fast enough so I could never comprehend what the hell they were saying. <laughs> so they used it, they used it against me, you know, when they needed to. It was like, I mean, it was like, actually, it was like my parents, because my parents could speak Yiddish, right? I never, you know, we never, the kids never learned Yiddish. My parents, when they wanted to talk to each other in private, in front of us, would speak Yiddish. We had no idea what they were saying. Well, this is what was going on in the set.
3: I know that uh, David Hewlett is, had acted before, but this is one of his first starring roles. What was he like to work with as a young man?
7: Oh, he was great. David was great. Cindy was great. Yeah, they were they were they were just they were really really sweet people, and they were and they were and they were great. You know, their acting their acting was superb. I mean, both of them did very well off of it. Unfortunately for Cindy, she you know she, after the fact, ended up having a terrible accident, which put her out of commission for a long
3: long time. How was the film received when it came out?
7: The film was received very well. The problem was that it was it was done for New World, okay, and. By the time I finished shooting and we, we we finished editing, New World closed down on their on their feature film business. It didn't exist anymore. And on top of that, we were supposed to do post production in Toronto, and the post production facility it was a new facility was supposed to be ready for us, and it wasn't ready. And so we ended up having to move from Toronto up to uh, up to San Francisco. To Saul Zant Studios up there in Berkeley. That's where my editor was uh, living up there, and so I would go up there, and we did post, which had, of course, was delayed. You know, cut the picture up there, and then I came back down, and we set up a screening uh, in Century City for well, it was a seven o'clock screening on a certain day. Well, the editor decided that instead of shipping it down, he was going to bring bring the film down, which he did. However, what he didn't do was he never checked with the theaters uh, in Century City because they used uh, they used a platter, right? all of the 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 reels, the ten reels were tied together. Well, he brought down ten separate reels. And of course, now and he came late. So now we got an audience at seven o'clock, and they're you know feverishly trying to put all of those reels together. To put them on a platter and it took over an hour well by the time the movie began these you know we didn't have we didn't have an audience anymore we had a crowd because they were already kibitzing amongst themselves joking amongst themselves by the time the movie started they were talking to the screen you know we had lost them already so what happened is you know new world which had intended to put it out as one of their last films they said, you know, it, w- it wasn't a good screening. And I, you know, and, and I and I wrote, you know, they had a New World, I can't remember his name at the time. And I said, look, you know, we, we need to, to screen it again because, it, you know, it was completely unfair to screen it that way. But they wouldn't do it. They didn't want to put more money into it. And so they just, you know, went directly to video.
3: That's a shame because I know when people have seen it, it creates such an impression on them. I mean, people still talk about the film today.
7: Oh, yeah. It's become a cult film. There's no doubt about it. I keep getting calls all the time uh, and uh, articles on it. There was one recently that, I, that somebody just sent me but because the guy had heard about it, never seen it. And he saw it and he wrote about it. He said, I love this film. It never appeared. It, it did appear uh in, in the theaters in Canada. It got great reviews and they never released it here and then a couple of years after it was released in Canada I was up in um, Portland uh doing a TV movie and I got a phone call from um an art theater in New York City I can't remember the name of it and this this woman said to me oh she said we've been we've been trying to hunt you down we're going to show pin here uh, uh on a two week engagement I said seriously I said I, I said, "How did you come to Pin?" She said, "Well, one of our people happened to be up in Canada when Pin was released theatrically, and they saw it. And we've been trying to track it down. Apparently, what happened is the is the two guys who who had owned the New World when they left, they took their they took the feature films with them, and uh, they finally tracked them down, and they got it, and they ended up getting a copy, um, and they and they showed it in an art house." theater for two weeks it we got great reviews in new york and then about two weeks later i get a phone call from the guy at the i think it's called the red Vic theater in san francisco another art house film
2: and he uh,
7: theater and he he said oh he said uh i saw your film in new york he said and we're showing it here we got two weeks and got great reviews in the san francisco papers but that was it. And it, it, you know, never went anywhere else other than that. Then I got the idea, and I talked to Andrew uh, Niederman, because uh, Niederman's deal with, uh, uh, with Mellow film was that after 20 years, if the picture had not been remade, he got all the rights back. Well, it was 20 years, he got all the rights back. I said, "You know, do you want to do it again? Because it hasn't been done here." So he said, yes. Yeah. So I rewrote it, updated it, made it, you know, more, more scary, more, uh, you know, more violent. Um, and I did the rewrite, haven't got, haven't been able to interest anybody in doing it.
3: I remember reading, I think it was like 2011 or something about the movie being remade. And then, uh, I seem to remember a couple of years after that, it seemed like it was being remade, but not by you.
7: No, so what happened is, we got a writer who who contacted us about doing a rewrite and and we said sure go ahead right and uh he he said i you know look he said i'd love to be able to do the first draft you know and then you could do whatever you want with it i said fine so he sent us his draft and andrew and i hated it just hated it and uh so you know we just said to the guy look you know what forget about it. we you know he he, he we didn't pay him to write it, but then on the other hand, he didn't pay he didn't pay us for the rights either. so you know that was that. Well, then what happened is we got calls from a couple of different producers about this guy's script. he was He was you know sending the script around, and we, we said to the producers, "What the hell is this guy doing? He has no rights. He doesn't own the rights to this. He has no business, you know contacting you and uh, so he finally gave up on it
3: briefly wanted to go back to um, Amityville Horror. I mean, that movie was huge, and I I don't know if people listening now would realize exactly how huge it was, but did you ever expect it to make the splash that it made when it came out?
7: No, 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 I didn't. I mean, it was a low-budget film, and it was going to be released not in that many theaters, and it was you know, it was a, 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 a Sam R's Arkoff film. You know, I mean, he was like the king of the like the B movies at the time. The movie was three and a half million dollars. That's all it cost to make that movie. And it made a hundred million dollars, which was a record at that time for an independent movie. No movie had ever made that kind of money. And even now, you know, they did a remake of, of it a few years ago. I had nothing to do with it, but they gave me a on-screen credit, you know, based on the book by Jay Anson and the screenplay by Sandor Stern. Uh, I didn't get any money out of it, but on the other hand, everybody started uh, uh, renting and buying the original to look at. So, so my residuals just were shot up like, or like crazy for the for two years. It was great. <laughs>
3: You ended up uh, kind of revisiting Amityville with uh, the Evil Escapes. What was that like for you?
7: I enjoyed that. I, I did that for uh, I did that for NBC. What happened is uh, there was a book that came out. I can't remember if it was called the Evil Escapes or not. I don't think it was. But anyway, I got a call from uh, Steve White, who was head, who was the head of uh, uh, NBC at the time. No, actually, I think he left. I think he was. It was his own production company. He had been the head of NBC. He wanted, you know, he wanted to know if I'd be interested. And I read this, I read the the, the, the book, and I thought, you know, there's nothing here. I said, Steve, why bother? Let's just do it without the book, right? And he, you know, he said, no. I told the guy I was going to buy the book, and so and he, which he did. And we shot it here in L.A. And you know, and the concept was not the concept that I came up with, which was sending the the, the lamp here to L.A. You know, Trent that wasn't in the book at all i mean that was just it was all of that was just made up from whole cloth by me but it was good and you know i i enjoyed directing it and uh it was fun and i you know it did okay but they've done they did so many of the sequels so many sequels you know to to that uh i don't think i've seen any of them the last one i read the script cuz they sent me the script when they, the one they did as a feature a remake, and uh, and I thought it was pretty good. It was a whole different look, a whole different take than what you know than what I'd presented. It was you know it, yeah, but it it didn't do very well. I, you know, I, I, I but it did get people interested in the original, which was great.
3: One of the most surprising credits that I see on your CV is that you uh, wrote lyrics for one of the movies that you did. Did you? Grow up in a musical household, or how did you come to to start writing lyrics for stuff?
7: I didn't really grow up. My dad played the piano, but um, I started playing guitar when I was in medical school, and uh, and uh, I used to actually I got started at CBC because of because of writing lyrics. And when I was interning, uh, I would write satirical songs, folk songs, and and you know, sing them. After when I went into medical practice, uh, a friend of mine who was an actress who actually worked at at Mount Sinai at the time called me up and she said, "Look, I got a uh, you know I got an audition uh, uh, for a Nightcap, and I uh, wondered if I could sing one of your songs." And I said, "Sure, not a problem." So she didn't get the role, but the producer called me and he said, "Why don't you come in? Let's have a, t- a talk." So I went in to see him. And uh, that's how I started writing. And I was writing uh, when I was practicing medicine. Still, uh, I would go every Thursday night. I would go to a play a set at the Offenbrough Cafe on Yorkville. It was close to, to Mount Sinai Hospital. Like five minutes to get there. So, if I had a woman in labor, for example, they would call me there and I would I just drop the guitar and I, or I take the guitar actually, I go down to Mount Sinai. And if, you know, and if it was a quick labor and a quick delivery, I'd get back in time to finish, uh, finish up for the evening. If it wasn't, I'd just play guitar for the women in a labor room, you know. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, but I was always writing lyrics. It was always satirical stuff. It was all political and social satire. That's that's what I was doing in those days.
3: Did that have any influence on your sons?
7: Oh, I think it did. Um, although the music, you know, that they, you know, that they followed is, you know, is punk rock, which is of no interest to me. I, I always felt like, you know, all you needed to, to do for punk rock is to know three chords and a guitar but they've been very very successful with it very successful and still are they still play they're still and in fact in S- September they're off to Spain on tour however and there's there's not three of them anymore because my son Adam you know gave it up a while ago cuz he's doing CGI and, and you know for movies and you know he said I can't you know I can't quit jobs just to go out on tour so so he gave it up. They picked up a couple guys whenever they go out. But their you know, their big score is they do this punk rock bowling uh, tournament in uh, in Vegas every Memorial Day. They've been doing it for twenty years. They have hundreds and hundreds of people bowling uh, at, at different bowling alleys. On top of which, uh, they book uh, four days, four days and four nights of bands that come there to play. So they're they're doing very well.
3: That's great. And how about you? What are you up to these days?
7: At the moment I'm doing I'm writing my memoir.
3: Oh, terrific.
7: Yeah, I uh uh I got so tired of, you know, I was I mean, I was writing spec scripts and I couldn't I don't have an agent anymore. My agent my agent left. Uh I was with him for 35 years. I, you know, nobody's interested in picking me up as an agent because they see my—they see how old I am. They have no interest in me. So I would, you know, I mean, I was writing spec scripts and I would send it into InkTip or the Blacklist or whatever, and, you know. And I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, people—even if people got interested, you know, they'd Google me or they'd go on IMDb and they say, "Jesus, this guy's old." are not interested, you know. This is this 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 writing thing is a young man. I mean, it's it's always been that way. I mean, when you you, you can go back to the early studios and and you, you were dealing with uh, heads of studios who were in their twenties at that time, it's always been a young man. I mean, I was 24 when I first sold when I sold my first script. So I stood, I just said, uh, this is crazy. I'm just banging my head against the wall. I got all kinds of screenplays that nobody, you know, I can't get anybody interested in. And uh so I wrote a couple of books. I wrote a I wrote a children's book uh um and ended up uh uh getting a, a publisher that didn't help me out at all. Then I wrote a th- anthology uh called The Karma Chronicles which uh you can get on uh you can get on Amazon uh, as an ebook. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to write my memoirs because even if I you know nobody's interested in reading it, at least my My kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, they'll know where they came from. That, to me, would be very satisfying. So that's what I'm working on.
3: From what I understand, you uh, were an English teacher for a long time before you moved into professional writing.
8: No, I was publishing while I was teaching. Uh, I taught for 23 and a half years in a high school in upstate New York, Fallsburg, New York. And I taught in community colleges, some, uh, you know, guest uh, classes. When my writing career really began to develop and PID was getting made, that's when I took a leave of absence and I started to write. I was hired to write V.C. Andrews. Um, that's about 30 years ago. Doing that and doing my own books, it was you know enough to keep me very busy and that's when I, I left teaching uh, completely in 1987.
3: How did the V.C. Andrews people... Think of you or contact you.
8: I had the same agent and I had the same editor at the time. My agent knew uh, most of my thrillers, like Penn, had uh, young people in the, as main characters. And she told me that uh, there was a chance that I would have to finish a V. C. Andrews novel. So I got into it and studied it and actually wrote some sample segments. And at that point... Um, I, wasn't, I still wasn't really getting into it until I came out to California. Uh, I wasn't even out here two weeks, but I got asked to come back because uh, they, they wanted me to get on the franchise, which I did. It's grown from uh, just under $30 million to over $107 million in the world.
3: Have you actually written more books as V.C. Andrews than V.C. Andrews did?
8: Oh, yeah. I wrote seven books. I've written the last 78
3: Oh, my God.
8: I mean, there's more books coming out that are already done. And, of course, um, I wrote the script for uh, a movie, independent movie, uh, Rain, which starred Faye Dunaway, Bob Loja, Donna Summer's daughter, Brooklyn Sedano, Kim. um, (coughs) There was a lot of different actors uh, in it. uh, And that was uh, one of the movies we did. And then out in Hollywood, we uh, might producer and myself, drummed up uh, enough support to get Lifetime to do five straight, and we're on the sixth right now.
3: Can you tell me what was it like when you got the call, or or however you were approached, to sell the rights to Penn?
8: I had an agent at the time who had been approached by Sandy Stern, Stern, who has been directing quite a bit of television and writing scripts. We got right into it together. We became friends, very close friends, Sandy and myself. It was a little bit of a battle to get it finally made, and he was able to do it. I went up to Montreal and was there for the shooting, and it was quite, quite well done. It was just unfortunate for us that the company at the time, New World, didn't go forward with a full theatrical release. But it slowly became a sort of a cult favorite, often compared to Psycho so that was great and um, Sandy and I went on to do a couple of other projects together
3: it must have been interesting to see these characters that you created in your mind kind of become flesh and blood
8: yeah that's always fascinating I, I, I don't know if you know it but I'm the author of The Devil's Advocate uh, that was a, a very big studio movie it's a fascinating thing to watch you know how it's brought to life on the screen I taught film for 20 years myself so I understood the differences and what has to be and what can't be from a book, you know. And so I was well acquainted with it to the point that Warner Brothers, for example, did, had no problem having me on the set for The Devil's Advocate. Uh, and I worked with the writers as much as much as I could to help them uh, develop the kind of screenplay that uh, that could be produced. It's exciting. Uh, you, you see a set that you created, for example, a setting come to life, and as well as the characters and. Uh, I remember when um, we first made The Maddening, which was based on a novel of mine, Playmates, with Burt Reynolds and Angie Dickinson, driving onto that set, I felt like I was driving into my book. And then the same was true for *Pin*, because Sandy found a wonderful house uh, up in Montreal, and he, he, he really cast some great young actors in it, as well as Terry O'Quinn, who people will know from... Uh, but Lost on ABC. So, basically, uh, we had a great, great crew in, in all regards, and that, that helped me get a quality film. Pin is definitely, it has to be my favorite uh, in regards to the fact that it was my first big best-selling book. I just love the story, and I felt bad when I had to stop it, because it came to an end. I wanted to keep going forever.
3: Of the films that have been adapted from your work, what are some of your favorites?
8: Well, I couldn't couldn't uh, not say uh, the Devil's Advocate because it's a worldwide uh, production. It was a movie that cost about eighty-seven million dollars. You know, when you're writing, when you're sitting in your room and writing a story, you never dream that that could be It's all over the world. And consequently, I was it was suggested to me by a screenwriter that it might make a great stage musical. So I got into that, and uh, with a librettist from uh, England, who's very um, much involved in the theater there, he and I wrote the libretto. We have a wonderful composer, Richard John, who right now is a music director of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the West End. And lo and below it, up behold, after a lot of attempts, we've um, sold it to uh, South Korea to do the premiere of The Devil's Advocate as a stage musical. In the meantime, uh, we developed it as a stage play, and it ran in the Netherlands, the entire country, for 81 performances. And, you know, it finished recently and was a big success there. So we we're hoping to see it place other places as a play as well. But the musical, of course, is the most exciting thing, and we have a big, big South Korean star who has his own production company? Who's going to play Satan in the musical? He's got a wonderful voice, and his name is Tony Ruh R H U. And uh, we're hoping, anticipating 2018 uh, as the uh, opening of it, and then from there it could go worldwide. So the Devil's Advocate lives on and on and on, which is which is great. And then I wrote the, um, the prequel to the Devil's Advocate called Judgment Day, um, published by Gallery Books, Simon and Schuster. That's been discussed as a new film as well. It's also up for a potential television series. So that would have to be one of my top um, choices, just because of the success. But Pin really got me uh, launched, and the script that Sandy wrote and the shooting of the movie was so close to what the book was. that um, I was really proud of it, very proud of it.
3: I'm curious how you made that connection between the Devil's Advocate musical and South Korea, of all places.
8: Well, the interesting thing about South Korea is they're now the world's third biggest producers of musicals, stage musicals. They do 55 a year. Um, Their production values are equal, if not better, than Broadway. They have a lot of money they put into their shows. We're going to open it in a 1,500-seat theater. They've been doing a lot of musicals that are, that are all over the world. So um, the interesting thing about how they do a musical uh, when, they, when they do it is they'll run 100 performances and then put it aside for a while, and then the following year run <laughs> another 100. So it can go on. They have, a, they have the rights to do it for six years, and probably it will run that, that long. So it uh, was very exciting. But uh, that came through by London agent, the London librettist and the composer and the agent all flew to South Korea and met with the
3: with the theater group. Can hardly imagine how excited you must be to to have that happen. And yeah, I had no idea that they had such a market over there for so many musicals. That's terrific.
8: Yeah, a lot of people don't know unless you get out of the country. You know, <laughs> but sometimes you don't know what's going on in the world. And essentially, uh, they're coming. The musicals are coming in from all over in South Korea, not just the, not just America or England, uh, and they're, once they're launched there, or if they premiere them, they do, they do see life in other places. So we're going to start in South Korea, but we're going to hopefully move uh, into the West End, in London, and then, in, of course, into Broadway.
3: How did doing the screenplay for Rain come about for you?
8: Well, I had written the five-book series, and I independent the producer approach would be about it. And at the time, I was also involved with Merv Griffin, uh, you remember Merv Griffin was. Oh, yeah. So Merv uh, wanted to be involved in the production as well. Uh, one of the producers who worked with Merv was Robert Loja's wife, Audrey Loja, and they all brought that together. And then the independent producer brought in the financing and we made the movie in Dallas, Texas. Um, one of the other actresses in it was Candy Alexander, who uh, was in Tremie recently, but had also been C- in CSI Miami. She was, uh, I think, the coroner in it. Anyway, uh, we had some good performers in it, very good. So that's streaming now, basically. But uh, that series did well, and uh, we, as I said, have done five straight. Uh, V.C. Andrews' movies on Lifetime, the first one, of course, Flowers in the Attic, broke their uh, viewer record at 6.1 million first night. So that uh, really put the franchise up on the map. I have also contracted to do the stage play of Flowers in the Attic with a Broadway production company called Martian Entertainment. And I just finished another draft of that script and we're reviewing that, and hopefully it'll be brought eventually into New York as a big stage play, you know. So that's exciting as well.
3: Since Pin was so under-supported when the movie came out, did that do anything for you as far as your career?
8: Oh yeah, Um, you know, once you have a, a book adapted into a film, Back then, especially, uh, it does help. There's always a movie tie-in, even if the book movie isn't out theatrically. Uh, so that helped a little bit. But it, it helped to <clears throat> like give me a launching pad to start with. And from there, um, Sandy and I went on to do another novel of mine called Duplicates, which was a USA cable uh, movie of the week. We also have some great performers, and Kevin McCarthy, and Gregory Harrison, Cicely Tyson. I've really been fortunate in the seven or eight films I've done. Uh, I've had some wonderful actors in them. That's helped a lot. You know, it's all plays a part. You you just have to continually reinvent yourself. I'm very excited about the theater. Uh, I used to direct school plays. It was good, you to, to get back, get into that world. To be honest with you, I'm more excited about theater than I am about film. Uh, there's nothing like a live audience. I just love that. I'm looking forward to these productions, you know, getting on. I'm also considering writing the script, the stage play of Pin, because it lends itself to it. And I just haven't. got It's not my back burner here. I started it, but I'm. Mean, I'm finishing up. Uh, I just finished a new nightmare thriller called The Girl and the Dead Log, which my agent will begin submitting uh, in about 10 days. And then I'm finishing up my new uh, V.C. Andrews contract, four novels, and four four novellas. So that's keeping me busy. And as I say, I just rewrote uh, Flowers in the Attic. Eventually, I'm going to get to 10 and do it as a stage play.
3: You write as yourself, and you write as VC Andrews. Is it just a matter of like getting into the right mindset when you approach these projects when you're writing as someone else versus writing as yourself?
8: Yeah, I've been doing it for thirty years, VC Andrews. So, basically, basically that's a it. it's totally different style of writing. It's different themes, different characters. Everything about V.C. Andrews is different from what I write it, and my name, my my books are a lot more graphic and uh, more edgy, I would say. Uh, V.C. Andrews is are, is about family uh, dis, dysfunction, young girls in hard places, uh, and overcoming a lot of obstacles. It's, um, it's it has its own genre in a way. Actually, V.C. Andrews, when it first came out, was what we call today YA novels, young adult, and the V.C. Andrews novels were the first ever, because a YA novel is a novel with a young character who has an adult problem, and that was V.C. Andrews, and that's what it is today. Now, of course, YA novels are extremely successful. From such novels, you have The Hunger Games, for example. So uh, that has gone on. Also, oh, Twilight. Twilight's basically V.C. Andrews with vampires. I mean, it's about it's yeah, it's about a girl in a dysfunctional world, and kids around her, and happens to be there's a family of vampires. So uh, that set the stage for all that. Um, V.C. Andrews created it way back with Flowers in the Attic, which, by the way, was the fastest selling paperback original novel ever. And it's now um, somewhere between 30 and 40 million copies in the world. We just sold it to mainland China. So we don't know what that's going to mean, but it's very hard to find a country in the world that does not have obviously, Andrews novels. And that could be true also for The Devil's Advocate, which has
3: been published
8: in dozens of countries.
3: I remember when I was growing up and just seeing every every checkout counter I would go to; those VC Andrews books would be there, and it was I was just the intrigued me so much. I think I was a little too young to pick them up, but it was just like, "What is this book that I see every place?"
8: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, well, the, the Facebook page I have has hundred forty four thousand, almost hundred fifty forty five thousand fans on it. The official VC Andrews Facebook page. You should go in on once in a while and look at. It. What's going on there? It's pretty, pretty interesting.
3: Do you ever feel slightly schizophrenic being two people when you're writing?
8: Yeah, you have to be multi-personality. Any writer has to have that ability because in order to write successful characters, you've got to be able to get into them and essentially become them and feel like they feel and see how they see. So that's not such a big move you know, when you think about it for a writer. To ghostwrite, though, you've got to be a student of style. You gotta take the time to understand it, practice it, and develop it. And for most of my V.C. Andrews career, nobody knew I was writing the books. But eventually, uh, it did come out, and then I was pursued by just about every magazine and news source that there is to try to to get me and find out what's going on, how I did it, and all that. And recently, the publishers have been very comfortable with me coming out of the closet, so to speak. So I've been featured on many, many different media, um, as the essentially one of the world's most successful ghostwriters.
3: It's gotta be kind of a shot in the arm.
8: Yeah, it's fun, you know, it's still fun and uh I've I've been I've been all over uh the world and in, in, uh, in speaking about V C Andrews novels. I have agents in ninety five countries. For example, I visited uh in, my agent in Hungary and in Czech Republic. Uh, and I've spoke, spoken in, at times to 80 different booksellers from 80 different entities. And everywhere you go, you, uh, you understand that what people really like or really want is a good story. And if you can do that and have good characters in it, it doesn't matter what language it's in.
3: You were actually a shy kid. Yes, extremely. And you decide to get into modeling to get past your shyness?
0: No, I didn't decide. <laughs> my mother sent me to a self-improvement course to help overcome my extreme sinus. Like I was really, really, really shy. Like when I started, well, when I started kindergarten, I couldn't sit with the other kids. I sat behind an evil sucked my thumb. And then all of us moved up together until grade eight. And then grade nine was a big jolt for me. And I had to go to another school with other kids. And if somebody looked at me, I'd have to go to the bathroom to calm down because it was just terrifying. I don't know why, but I was very, very shy. So my mom sent me to a self-improvement course, which we did not know was a slash modeling course. So I took the course, and then there were modeling agents apparently looking at the girls, and one of them said, uh, I'd like to represent you if you gain 10 pounds, because I was really twiggy. And we said, okay. Like, there's always been this weird mix with me between being really shy and also working hard and taking advantage of opportunities.
3: So here comes an opportunity where you get to break out of your shell.
0: Yeah. So they said, do you want to do this? And we went, um, okay, sure. What do I have to do? Well, you just have to go on these go-sees. And so you get jobs. And I was then just sort of modeling for Sears and loved Baby Soft. And that led to Japanese scouts seeing my pictures in the modeling books and offering to take me over to Japan uh, because North American models were very popular there. And my dad checked it out and it was a legitimate agency. So off I went to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't at the very beginning of the modeling. I modeled, I guess I started probably in grade nine, maybe 10. I have a pretty bad memory, probably grade nine. And then I think grade 12, I went to Japan the first time and I had so much fun. I went for two months. And so while I was there, I arranged to go back again the following year. So I went back for four months the following year. So six months total.
3: Now, did you speak a lick of Japanese when you went over there?
0: No, but the fascinating thing is that the models, they housed us all together in these model apartments and none of us knew Japanese before we went there, but you could feel yourself absorbing the language. Like, you have your your phrase book, and if you have to look up how to say how much does this cost or where is the washroom, if you look it up three times, you're going to remember it. So we felt ourselves absorbing the language really quickly. Three stages to learning the language. There was think it in English, look it up, say it in Japanese. And then there was think it in English, remember how to say it in Japanese, say it in Japanese. And then there was just think it and say it in Japanese. Do you know what I mean? So it was this really quick, but very tangible, the wrong word, but you could feel it. You know, like it, was, it was really clear phases. It was a really interesting experience.
3: How did you balance the modeling with the schoolwork when you were still in middle school and, and high school?
0: Um, well, I didn't have middle school. I went K to 8, and then I went 9 to 13. We had 13 back then. And I had excelled a bit, not just to make myself sound like a more of a brainiac than I was, but I did well in certain subjects. So I had grade 13 subjects uh, when I was in grade 10 and 11. So when I went for grade 12... I did part of my course load and then went to Japan. And then when I came back for 13, I switched to a different school because my school was three terms. So I switched to a two-semester school and finished three, two or three, I can't remember, grade 13 courses, and then graduated on schedule.
3: That must have been something to travel over to Japan when you're so young. I mean, I've traveled when I was younger as well, and it's just such a formative experience. You kind of feel like you can take on the world after that. It
0: really was, especially since I had never been on a plane before. Alone, let alone on a plane, you know what I mean? Like I my, my parents had a cottage. but so we're, we're like, you know, Southern Ontario, we're cottage country people, do you know what I mean? So you live in Toronto in the suburbs and you travel an hour and a half to your cottage. So weekends and summers, I was fortunate enough to have parents that had a cottage. And so I'd never been to camp. I'd never been away from my parents. So at twelve, off I went to Japan by myself and had, of course, the time of my life and arranged to go back. And, uh, yeah, it was very formative, very, very fun. The modeling to go back to the shyness, the modeling kind of just gave me a thing that was my own thing that I did, you know, in grade nine, 10, 11, it was like, my friends don't do this. So this is just different. This is this thing that I do. I don't know. If you're really shy, you don't have any confidence in yourself. It's not like something makes you think, Oh, I'm fabulous, special and different, but it kind of gives you a little bit of Okay, this is my thing. And then it was really important to keep my marks up because I didn't want anybody to think that I had a big head because I was modeling. You know, it was in my day and age, the worst thing was to be thought of as conceited. (laughs) That was taboo. So I just had to keep my marks up, and not that I was great in every subject, but like in grade thirteen, I don't know. Did you guys have functions and relations in grade thirteen? Or like maybe that's first year college. But me taking functions in the relations in grade 13 math and getting a 74 was like, I may as well gotten a 95 in something else that was easier. Cause I always got good marks in, I guess you'd call them the humanities, anything you could think about in it wasn't math based. So for me to do something in math that even got a 74 was a huge accomplishment. I kept signing up for it. I don't know if that's some psycho ambitious thing, but I kept signing up for it in university, but I never did get to go to university because I kept getting acting jobs, modeling. I didn't plan on acting. Right. Um, the way it happened was I had come back from Japan the second time, there was a talent rep at the modeling agency, and they introduced me to the two ta- the new talent rep because they seemed to come and go, and I said, nice to meet you, I'm sorry, I won't be working with you, I'm quitting modeling because I have my money for university, so I'm going to, you know. Um, well, I come from a, a family of, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers, and there was never any doubt that I would go to university. But my parents were kind of emotionally blackmailing me and said they'd pay for it if I lived at home. And I was like, no, I want to have the whole university experience and live away. So fortunately, being invited to Japan and making some money made that a possibility. So I completely thought that I was just going to go off to school. But I don't know. How did it happen? they were looking for the kid, a kid, to play the 15-year-old daughter of Jill Clayburgh and Tom Skerritt in a movie called Miles to Go. And it was my summer between high school and university and I had just quit modeling and they were having a hard time casting it as I understand it. So they started going through the modeling books and they said to the talent rep at my agency, they said, she looks perfect to play their daughter. Can she act? And he said, oh, they, can she act, you know, and then called me and said, can you act? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) He said, well, didn't you take take drama in high school? And I said, yeah, we did Jabberwocky and a radio program. I really don't know. And he said, well, go try So in that movie, um, Jill, the mother, was dying of cancer, so I thought, well, if I can say the words right and I can cry, maybe they'll look at me twice. So I did, and I got a call back, and they called me back again and again and again. It's seven callbacks, which is unheard of. In my 30-year career, you don't have seven callbacks, (laughs) but that first time. And um, I got the job and thought that it was just a fun thing to do the summer between high school and university. But um, I went to my first day of university and was a very eager beaver. I was taking notes and everything on the first day, which nobody really does. But. And I got home that night and I'd gotten another lead in the film because the casting people in Toronto wanted to see who the nobody was that got. So I had been called into casting offices after I got home from doing Miles to Go. And it uh, turned out then I, I got one of those jobs. So And it just kept happening. So I got my tuition back and uh, did the next movie and then signed up for my courses math included because I'm an idiot. Um, and then the next, um, semester, uh, I got another lead in a film. So I have people say, how do you get into the business? I say, I have no idea because it didn't happen normally to me at all. This one job because of the connection to modeling and they saw my picture and then I got another job and then I got another job. So I kept getting my tuition back and, you know, refilling out my courses and repaying my tuition, tuition and just never worked out. You know, I was doing my fifth lead. My fifth lead was in a movie called Cold Comfort, a three-hander with me, Maury Chaykin, and Paul Gross. And it was about, Maury was the dad and I played a teenage girl. And we were, I don't know where it was supposed to be, like north of Calgary or something. We were in some snow-bound place. And then... Um, Paul Gross is some traveling salesman or something like really so long ago. I can't remember, but he comes to our, not to town. It's just us to our little house. And so it's three people for the whole film. And we rehearsed for two weeks. And then at the end of the first day of shooting, I got into a huge car accident. I was in the hospital for three months and out of work for over a year. And so I had to get my tuition back again. Cause after that movie, I had decided to take time off and go to school no matter what. It was like my fifth film. I'm going to school after this, except, I couldn't have foreseen that, of course.
3: It was like yeah. the forces at B just did not want you exactly. to go to school.
0: Yeah. So then I did another lead about a year and a quarter after. I was still in pretty rough shape, but the um, the film company that the accident happened with, they gave me a lead in another another film and gave me like a walking double and a running double, and basically I just had to stand there and talk and move my arms like I was running, and then the running double would would step in. So they got me back to work. So all of a sudden I was back in it, you know, after five years of doing it, like that was at two and a half year point. After five years of doing it, I said to myself, well, I guess I'm an actor. You know, the, the talent rep at the modeling agency just called us all actors. So I thought actress was an old Hollywood term, like starlet. Like I didn't think it was used anymore. So I've just always been an actor in my mind.
3: Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I noticed even on your, your website, your actor, Cynthia Preston.
0: Yeah, I just am not comfortable. Like I actually have people correct me and they'll say, what do you do? And I say, I'm an actor. And they'll say, oh, you mean you're an actress? And I just smile and say, yes, but I'm really not comfortable with the term. But I avoid it. People say, what do you do? And I say, I act. And they say, pardon? (laughs) I say, I act. And it just sounds like you're mumbling.
3: So where in all this did PIN fit in?
0: My goodness. PIN was in 87. Because I guess it was released in 88? So my first movie was in 86. So Penn was probably, I think, maybe my third movie, third or fourth. And, and anyway, so David Hewlett, playing my brother, we got along famously. Like It was just such an amazing experience. You know, David was so good. And Sandy Stern was such an amazing director. He was just so nurturing and wonderful and helpful. And I want to get his number from you so I can talk to him again. <laughs> he was just a lovely man. And the atmosphere on his set was so wonderful. And, let's see, Pin. So that was produced by um, Pierre David, who back then to me was Pierre David and René Malot. Everyone was just so wonderful. So wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was such a great experience. I, I don't know. I was just a lucky kid. Really lucky. I just I just remember doing the scenes. I mean, it's funny because my memory is so weird because my car accident that happened in 1988, like David and I were talking on set, and he was talking about getting his own apartment, and I um, was living with these, Um, girls downtown and it was kind of a crowded place. It was (laughs) twins and their cousins. So there were four of us in this apartment. And so I said to David, well, let's, let's get a place together. So after the movie we did, we found an apartment and we moved in together and he was, you know, like a brother to me. And it wasn't quite a year. I think that we were roommates and then the accident happened and then he took care of my cat for a while <laughs> and i was in the hospital like i said for three months and then i had to move back in with my parents because i couldn't care for myself because i was really seriously injured and that's what i remember about how that came about like like lived with dave until the car accident so you know he's really special to me he's just art <laughs> always and um gosh, where else where do we want to go from there
3: Just the way that you kind of got into your acting career, I mean, it doesn't even sound like you really realized that it was your career for so many years. When was that moment?
0: When? I just remember, like I said, it was around five years that I went, oh, I guess I'm an actor. Actually, what I do. And, you know, at that point, I'd probably done like seven or eight leads in films. Like, that just doesn't happen to people. It's really odd. And I'm not saying I'm a wonderful actor or anything. I just think it's work ethic, um, luck, uh, being emotional, you know, I'm always the type that gets moved by commercials. If it's a good commercial, I'll cry. <laughs> uh, so, and I fell into a fortunate. I got some good advice early on because I was working a lot. I don't remember who said it, but someone said, "Be careful who you study with, because they can ruin what you're doing, and what you're doing is working." So I would take, you know, I would audit classes, and but for the first nine years, I think it was. I don't think it's quite ten years before I moved to LA, but. For the first nine years in Toronto, I have audit classes and I'd find some that were pretty good, but I didn't find anyone that I really wanted to devote myself to as a system of study. And then when I was in L.A., Playhouse West, which was a Meisner school, and I went and audited a class and just bells of truth were going off in my head. And i went, this, this is something I want to devote myself to. And so by going to classes for well, it was 12 years, I think. But for the first few years at Playhouse West, it gave me a vocabulary for what I had been doing, for what why certain things worked and why other things didn't work. You know, like, happy that I did was I would take a full swing. You know, like, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I will go full out. I will sing, swing fully. And there was an episode of Cats and Dogs. Do you remember? You probably don't. You're not from up here. It was a Canadian show. And um, it was a Canadian cop show about a cop and his dog. And I felt like I had shifted gears while I was shooting that show. I was getting better. I didn't know if this was the De Niro gear. (laughs) You know, like, hey, maybe I really discovered a new level uh, or depth to my acting. And I did it. And then when I saw the show on TV, I was like, oh my gosh, this is hideous. This is terrible. And I didn't understand until years later when I was studying at Playhouse West why it was terrible. And what I came to understand was during that show, I was what I thought the character would do instead of just living in the moment and being the character. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't even know I was pretending at the time, but in retrospect, looking back, I could identify why it was so bad when I saw it on screen. Um, Cause it was a step removed. Like what I learned at Meister was like, you don't shoot for an objective. You don't plan anything or plot anything because then that's one step removed from reality. Do you know what I mean? Like, how can you be living in the moment if you're trying to shoot for some effect, some outcome?
3: You're very driven. And so when you go out and you try for a role and you don't get it in these early years before you kind of even admit to yourself that you are an actor, what's your reaction with some of these?
0: Well, it's funny because you said driven, but I don't feel driven. I just feel like I had a good work ethic, which I see as different. Do you know, like my parents were really old school. My parents were older parents. Um, like my dad was born in 1921, my mom in 22. So my dad fought in World War II. Like, I have brothers and sisters that have kids a year younger than me. I have a complicated sort of family life, <laughs> um, not complicated, but just perhaps unusual. And maybe it was the old school teaching of, you know, work hard and make the most of things. So it's a bit different than driven. Do you know what I mean? Like driven to me sounds, sounds like an objective. Like I, I know what I want to do and I'm going to do it. But I didn't at all opportunities would come my way and I would just try really hard. Like, what is this going to take? This means I have to know my lines. I have to figure out why my character does what she does. She, but makes her me, you know, whatever it was that I had to do, I tried to do it. I just tried hard. Do you know what I mean? So not getting, Thing, things. Well, the other weird thing was, as I've described, I got a lot of things early out, so I had a really um, false representation, I guess, of what it's like to be in the business. You know, you just it doesn't. I'm. It's not that easy. It's really hard, actually. It's really, really, really hard to break in because I've watched friends and friends' kids try to break in, and they can be really talented people, as well as knowing people from school, like from acting class, that are amazingly talented actors, but don't book work or can't get an agent. Just being a successful actor in my book has always said very little about talent. <laughs> you know, you're really lucky. And some people that are lucky are good actors and some do as well.
3: Once you decide to be an actor, once you're like, okay, I guess I am an actor. Mm-hmm. Does that change how you go after these roles at all? Or did you just kind of still continue
0: yeah. doing what you're doing? I didn't really have a big change. It was just, I was fortunate enough to have an agent in the beginning who was that talent rep at the modeling agency I told you about? And he and I clicked a deep way, and, and so he worked very very hard to send me out, and I worked very hard to, at the auditions, and I got a lot of parts. And then he unfortunately passed away, and I got another agent, and for, shortly after that I got um, offers of representation to go to LA, which I. Turned down. I said, I'm a Canadian actor and I'm just working Canada. <laughs> Why would I go to LA where there's like a thousand or uh, millions more people trying to get the same jobs I'm trying to get? And um at one point after saying no to the offers of representation a whole bunch of times, I realized that there were people that would give their left arm to be represented by any of these companies. So perhaps I should try to work both coasts. So I said yes. Thinking I could work both coasts, which isn't really possible, but um And I moved down to L.A. and I got all these offers to to do movies back up here in Canada. So I would just get offers and here, read the script, and will you do it? So for the first couple of years of being down there, you know, it was, I would just say yes or no.
3: (laughs) I'm curious, you've done so much work over the years. What have been some of your favorite things that you've done?
0: The ones that stand out. I mean, there's so many for so many different reasons. Um, Well, the reason I even thought that this would be a cool career was because of the crews. It's like, most people are just so amazing it can be a bad, you know, apple in every bunch, but most people are just incredible. And working with this huge circus of people was so inspiring and exciting and fun and supportive. You know, it can be a really hard job, but the crew's got your back, you know, and you've got their back too. And I thought I knew that for years. I thought I was a really supportive actor. And not until way later on General Hospital, did I learn a really great lesson from Tony Geary. And I didn't have my purse from the props department yet. So I, you know, called out and asked for my purse. And Tony said something like, you know what, they're doing 100,000 things. And I bet you right before they roll, you'll have that purse. And he had their back, and he taught me to have their back and not call out and say, can I have my purse, please? They're going to have it for you. And if they don't, you know, cover for them. That would be an even more considerate actor, which was important to me. So, yeah, Tony Geary taught me a great, great lesson there. So I'm always looking for ways to, it sounds stupid, I feel like a Pollyanna, but be a better team player.
3: So what are you working on these days?
0: I just did an episode of a show called Saving Hope, which is a hospital drama just finished that last week. And other than that, I just, you know, write um, and um, option and produce my own stuff. I found a book a few years ago. And by saying found a book makes me sound like so tricky. But my niece wrote a book, a memoir that I thought was amazing. And so I shopped it around to different producers that I had worked with on both sides of the border. And one of them picked up the option and we made it into a movie for Lifetime was called The Secret Sex Life of a Single Mom. Yeah, so I got an associate producer credit for bringing them the project, and I got to play a supporting role. I got to play the lead character's best friend in the movie. And just the process of pitching that, for I guess it was about eight months before somebody picked up the option, which coincidentally was Pierre, Pierre David, David, who was a producer on PIN action for you. So Pierre picked up the option, made the movie into a Lifetime movie, And was the, I don't know how many times I worked with Pierre. See, I became part of Pierre's Stable. So the first time I worked with him was 1987. And then I've done all these Lifetime movies for him in Ottawa. And I'll either be the lead in the movie or the best friend or even a cameo. There was one movie where I was a body. You know, they had a stunt woman fall down the stairs and then I dub in and and, sub in. And then they pick me up and put me in a car and I'm a dead body. (laughs) <laughs> and Pierre was Pierre is more than just a business associate, he's a friend. You know, and I didn't really realize that until he had found out from some other crew members that I was friends with that my marriage had ended, that my husband and I had broken up after 12 years. And so Pierre called me up and said, you're coming up here. You're going to play the bartender. You're going to be in two scenes. You'll have one day's work, and we're going to put you up for four days up here being Ottawa, because that's where he shot all his movies or shoots. And he said, you need to be around people who love you. That's Pierre David. He's amazing. He's amazing. So yeah, so Pin was the first movie. Um, and the movie that I associate produced, I brought in the project, and then that gave me such a taste for behind the scenes that then I wrote a script and went to the Banff World Media Festival the summer before last and pitched that and got a director who was interested. He said, you know, come down to L.A. and write with me for five days. I want to. Um, so I did that. And then I. um went back and took four months to do the rewrites on what we had decided in those five days. And then I went back to Banff this past June and pitched that plus another TV show I had optioned and two children's shows that I was working on creating with another writer. And so I had four projects to pitch in Banff this year and I picked up, um, an associate producer on the script that I've written. So all of these things take a long time. They take a really, really long time to come to fruition if they ever even do. So that's fine. I just, I love doing this stuff and I'm just going to keep doing it.
3: Well, for somebody who's painfully shy, you, you managed to do a few things.
0: Well, there's this weird thing that happens where I overcame it and I'm not shy at all anymore. I think it was auditioning for commercials. Like I've always said, auditioning for commercials beat whatsoever if you're not willing to look like a complete fool don't go into the audition for commercials because you just have to do stupid things so you know it's years of being in the business that sort of kind of really I don't know beat it out of me sounds a bit extreme but um, trained it out of me
3: All right, we are back, and we are talking about Pin. So, yeah, we touched a little bit on the differences between the book and the movie. And I have to say, it's a really, really good adaptation. They did pretty much the whole thing. I mean, you you really can feel the movie while you're reading the book and vice versa. I mean, there's just a couple differences. You know, We talked about the end of it a little bit. There was this whole thing with Stan being a Vietnam veteran, which I don't think would have necessarily worked for this movie being a 1988 film. I think had it come out closer to when the book was written, maybe they could have kept that. But really, I think it kind of keeps it a little bit more timeless that he's not a veteran. And he had had his leg blown off in Vietnam, so he has a, what leg, and you would think that that would maybe make him kind of almost a um, thing of interest to Leon and Pin, because he is kind of merged, you know, he has plastic parts or wooden parts as well as human parts, but they don't really play that up too much. Brunenberg would have kept that.
4: That would have <laughs> been his entry point. Yeah. <laughs> <material. laughs>
3: It's the leg that is Leon's undoing because he does. He pulls off his whole plan in the book. He takes the body, you know, he uh, injects all this insulin to Stan. He puts him in this uh, coma and then eventually dies. He takes uh, Stan's body out and dumps it into this hole that he chops in this uh, pond that's nearby. And it's the leg that is left over. For some reason, he doesn't sink the leg. So he puts the leg into the fire. And when she's home, Ursula is home, and she's really frantic about all this, and some time has finally passed, and the The police have found Stan's car, and um, you know Leon's trying to comfort her, and they're having this kind of nice night at home. She goes to put some more wood onto the fire, and wouldn't you know, she finds Stan's leg pretty much intact inside of the ashes, and that's the undoing of Leon. But I would say that that's probably the the biggest difference. So there's no Aunt Dorothy, but. Uh, some of the things that happen to Aunt Dorothy, Leon tries to do to Ursula. He tries to scare her he it's interesting he he paints all this stuff onto pin's face and um, makes him glow in the dark. but then Ursula never comes downstairs to uh to find Pin down there uh, and the other thing I would say is that um as the book goes along whenever leon is really stressed out he has these periods where his hands will go numb and eventually his arms go numb and towards the end his whole like legs go numb so that really kind of leads us into him becoming pin is that he's had this moment of complete stress and now his whole body has become numb
4: that's interesting i mean that seems more organic but maybe we we would see the twist coming a little more If that was happening.
3: Yeah, and I don't know how they would have necessarily. I mean, I guess just him squeezing his hand or something or, you know, smacking it around and, oh, darn, my hand is numb. It might have been a little bit too obvious. Paul, you run the site and you've run the site canuxploitation.com for a long damn time. So I'm curious where does PIN kind of fit into canuxploitation for you?
5: I mean, the thing about Pin was it—it it was made right. Uh, I think it was made in what 1987. Um, it was made right at the very end of the tax shelter era. So I'm sure people have heard about the kind of the Canadian tax shelter time. It was—it was basically a opportunity for people to invest in films, and they would get, depending on the year, up to 100 percent of their money was basically a write off that they would. They would invest this money. It would be a total write-off. As a result, we got a lot of genre films made in Canada. The key time was about 1975 to about 1982. That's when a lot of these films got made. In 1982, they reduced the write-off to 50%. And and then they stopped it completely in 88. So as a result, in 1987, 1988, it was just kind of a a real last gasp um, explosion of genre film in Canada – of which pin is definitely part of now for me, this is really one of the better films. A lot of the films that got made kind of under the wire, um, are not, are, are not very well done. They're just kind of very quickly put together. It's films like, uh, rock and roll nightmare or, or blood roses curtains. Um, no, that was like 83. I, I mean, oh, okay. not, not a very well made film There's anyways, strength, but, <laughs> um, but there was kind of uh, 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 what Bleeders, I think, was one of them. There was a lot of kind of very low-budget video store kind of films made. And, and I think Pin definitely is, is one of the best of the batch of that last gasp of Canadian thriller filmmaking. Um, after that, there was kind of nothing for the 90s. It just kind of petered down until stuff like uh, Ginger Snaps cube till these films started getting made there was kind of almost about 10 years uh where there wasn't much happening in genre filmmaking it was kind of uh, a lot of tour cinema started to happen so you know i look finally back at that period and 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 i look finally back at pin because it, it's just a uh, a great representative for the for that end of the period end of the tax shelter period
3: Every once in a while, I'm reminded of like a Lifetime movie when I'm watching this. I don't know if it's the music or the lighting or what it is, but there's just something that kind of feels lifetimey to me. But I would say that it would be unfair to call this a Lifetime movie because it deals in stuff that is way darker than anything I've ever seen on a, a Lifetime thing. But yeah, just something. Am I kind of nuts for that one, or did you guys get that vibe as well?
5: I mean, I think a lot of these films that that did happen around that time, especially in Canada, have a bit of a flat, kind of a TV look to it. Um, and I think part of the reason is because a lot of the people were doing a lot of television at the time. Film was dwindling down as they got closer to the end of the era. And uh, a lot of these guys were moving to television or had, had already moved into television. So it, it does – I mean, you're not wrong. It, it, it kind of has that kind of lighting and the flat look and the kind of melodramatic – Aspect of a TV film sometimes, but you know, having seen many of these films from the same time, I have so also have to say it's also a lot better made than a lot of films I've seen from that period.
3: No, I think it's very well made, very very well directed. Yeah, you know, we talked about that a little bit before, as far as you know, the way that Stern handles the um uh, the suspense, I think it's fantastic, and mm-hmm. it doesn't feel. It doesn't feel cheap. No, at no, all,
5: no, no, you know? no. No, I don't mean to imply that at all. It's just a very Canadian look to me. It's hard for me to describe, I guess, but definitely there's a lot of Canadian films that look to me like this.
4: It's not typically exploitive. So even though there's one scene where a girl takes off her bra, it's shot in an absolutely matter of fact manner that doesn't even feel sexualized, strangely enough. Whereas I think of films like other can exploitation films, I, I like The Pit. A lot, a mm. pit yes. movie I like a lot, but it feels you know it's so explo- it really is exploitation. Oh, yeah. oh, you know. yeah, well, selling the goods.
5: Yes, when I use the term connexploitation, exploitation," it doesn't necessarily only refer to exploitation films. I, I mostly use it to refer to genre films um, made in Canada. So, absolutely for me, connexploitation exploitation runs a gamut from absolute trash like um, American Nightmare um, to actually well-made films like uh, Dead Ringers or or uh, or Pin. You know, two films, uh, you, would, uh, you know, two films that this film
4: reminded me, one film particularly, uh, this viewing, and I don't think it's a story thing. It was just a tone was um, Stoker. Remember Stoker from a couple years ago?
3: Is that the one with uh, Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson?
1: I'm Stoker Ace, and the only thing I like better than winning a race is to stuff torquil chicken in my face.
4: It could be. <laughs> there could be another one out there. But, uh, you know, the director of Old Boy, his film that Wentworth Miller, the prison break guy, wrote, and it's a very classy, beautifully directed art house thriller but it's it deals with some of the like uh, psychic trauma in a similar way and it and it's also very classly put together whereas the material is fairly exploitation based you know and so it's a it's a really interesting movie but i, I kept thinking about it. the whole movie that watching it for the show i kept thinking about stoker and then obviously the new film that came out this year the boy camera boych studio put that out but it's about you know grieving doll So it had a lot of similarities to Penn initially. The first half is literally about a doll that's dressed like a little boy, and it's there for grief. So parents can, you know, basically who've lost a kid, they can act like it's real and project onto it until they feel comfortable moving away. But obviously the film makes it seem like perhaps it's real. That one was a very
3: on-the-nose similarity, and I would be shocked if that person hadn't seen Penn. That's interesting you say that because that reminds me of ZPG, zero population growth, and just the people are unable to, or or it's outlawed to have children. So a lot of people will buy these kind of uh, dolls and have them and treat them like children and give them birthday parties and all of these kind of things, like a cabbage patch to the max kind of thing. So, you know, there's a lot of that inside of that film as far as, like, you know, these parents who treat these dolls like children.
5: Yeah, well, I think the one film this reminds me most of is one that that was just mentioned, um, The Pit. Uh, another canadian film in that film obviously there's there's uh, uh the teddy bear which is essentially yeah. plays that same role that pin plays he gives advice to 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 the kid and and uh however in this case it's much more uh um there's a m- much more obvious supernatural element going on i mean the teddy moves his head around when oh, when, so when, nobody's, yeah, when so yeah when when nobody's in the room and uh, you know there's there's definitely a kind of a malevolent spirit in that teddy bear that's making making the kid do do all the bad stuff. <laughs> it's but finally it's almost,
4: coming out here in America. It's just, like within days. It's finally getting a proper release, which I think is really cool. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy that film.
5: Mm-hmm. I actually did the commentary for the uh, for the new Blu-ray. So, oh great! I'm, yeah, I'm excited. For, I'm excited to see it come out as well. It's uh, it's it's, uh, it's a film that uh, is very very strange. <laughs>
3: Well, and like all people who do audio commentaries, I mean, I'm sure you got just buku bucks for doing that oh, as well. Just piles. Rolling in riches? A pit, yeah, A pitfall, I would say. A pittance. You know, one thing I forgot about the adaptation that I should have brought up, and I, I don't know why I didn't do this before, was that I don't believe that it's the nurse that ends up having sex with Pin, but it is actually Ursula who ends up having sex with Pin. During that part where stanley is a threat to leon and to pin they make a plan to kind of get ursula back into the fold so they do this whole thing where they try to you know have her go downstairs and get scared by pin and come running back into leon's arms And uh, at one point, they have an agreement to leave Pin downstairs. He only belongs on the first floor, never to come up onto the second floor. And when Leon is really feeling threatened by Stan, he starts to move Pin up into his room. And it really causes a whole lot of distress to Ursula. And there's one moment where he... um, gets into bed with Ursula with Pin and basically forces Pin onto her, and she ends up having sex with Pin. So that's where I think the the incest is probably at its most uh, noticeable, but it's yeah, it's such a, a strange scene. but they have a couple other like, I don't want to say bedroom games. There's a, this whole thing about how they their rooms are connected, and they have this door and it's kind of his signal from her as far as how, open her door as to, as to you know how she's feeling about him. And he's really shocked the one time he comes in and the door is closed and he listens to uh, Ursula and Stan having sex on the other side. But when they were younger, there was this kind of homely girl that comes in and— is hitting on Ursula and they end up kind of having sex but Leon sneaks in and he ends up doing some stuff to her he pretty much grabs her pussy and she's into it for a while until she realizes that it's Leon doing it and that's also that moment where you get Ursula and Leon thinking that they're better than everybody else because it's like look at this uh, homely girl that we humiliated and they get a real laugh out of it And I think it's as they grow up that Leon still maintains that kind of feeling about things, that he is better than people. But I think Ursula moving out into the world and getting the job at the library, it uh, helps expose her to, you know, that that there are other people out there. Penning isn't it for everyone. (laughs) Or
4: the pegging in this case, I suppose. (laughs) These bedroom games. I like how innocently you put that.
5: The only thing we didn't talk about that's kind of funny is the uh, his mother, who, who also dies. Um, we don't get a, a, a big picture of the mother um, throughout the film, but uh, you know those sequences where she's constantly cleaning the house. I think there's a scene where she snaps or slaps Leon, um, but the jokes that they
3: make about her after she dies. Yeah, they're not the most sympathetic to having a dead mother.
5: No, well, and I guess before she dies too, he makes the joke. Leon makes a joke about uh, they're trying to picture their parents having sex, and I think it's Leon who says, uh, "You know, I, I wonder if she makes father dip his penis in spick and span." <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> it might also be a way to differentiate it from Psycho. You know, it's doing a Psycho <laughs> roof, but it's not using the mother. As the focus of the domineering personality, you know, it's going away from that, which is kind of cool. I, I also just say on a technical level, I think one of the other standout elements of the
3: movie is the score. I, I, I think it's really atmospheric. It was a great score. And then there's some cool rock tunes as well, which I've been trying to track down. Yeah, Mondo will probably release that soundtrack soon. Running on Love and On the Run. So there's a lot of running that, that uh, Larry Weir has in his, uh, his songs on this one. So not nearly as good as the soundtrack to Killer Party that was discussed a few weeks ago, but, you know, still pretty good. Another uh, brilliant, to me anyway, exploitation film. I still haven't seen that one. Oh, man, you have It'll to be on my Halloween list now. There you go. Yeah. Your 31 days list. Yep, it's going to make it. I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Elric and Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the show, guys. So, Paul, what is keeping you busy these days?
5: Um, well, aside from connexploitation, um, uh, Fab Press just released the reprint of the uh, uh, book. I, I own the Spectacular Optical Publishing Company with uh, Kayla Janice, and we released our book, Satanic Panic, last year. It's been reprinted by Fab, and it's just available now. Um, as I mentioned, I'm also on the, the new Pitt Blu-ray that's coming out shortly, uh, as well as I will be on the Neptune
3: Factor Blu-ray doing a commentary there that's coming out in a few weeks as well you're also involved with the black museum
5: uh yeah that's right we have we have a uh, uh kind of a horror event lecture series and uh up in toronto here uh we are working on something for november we're going to be doing another debate horror film debate so then we're looking forward to that can you say what it is or uh, we're still working on the topic i think it's to, okay. i think it's going to be best final girl but we're not we're still uh we're still discussing
3: I know people can get pretty heated when it comes to certain topics.
5: <laughs> that's yeah. Well, that's the idea. It's uh, uh, they're a lot of fun.
3: They're a lot of fun to do. What was last year's debate? Do you remember? Uh, last year's was best sequel. Oh, okay, who ended up on top? The winner was
5: uh, Exorcist Three One. Well, it's kind of like people pick their topics, and then whoever um, whoever argues the best, and it's not always the best. It's not always the best film that wins. For example, we had best Stephen King adaptation, and Maximum Overdrive won that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of the, you know, the more the more passionate uh, people argue for it, sometimes uh, carries the day. So,
4: I would have jumped on Fright Night Part Two. genuine fan
3: (laughs) yeah i think i would have been there for either texas chainsaw massacre 2 or oh gosh there was another one that leaped immediately into mind when you said that five minutes after i i'm done hitting stop on this recording so how about you Alric? what's uh, the haps with you these days
4: keeping busy with uh doing our, our show that's uh you know it's it's doing it's doing okay uh shockwaves now rebranded uh, was killer pov um always trying to push people to the back episodes because there were a lot of good interviews in there we have some fun ones coming up this month we're doing an, an episode all on haunted houses with uh lee winnell uh from the um insidious you know the insidious writer and the soul writer and actor and that should be a lot of fun uh in the film pursuit type stuff, uh, there's a film that is actually a future guest of yours. I think probably uh, a year from now or something. Uh, Orin Shy directed a film called The Frontier, uh, and it's a noir playing at NorCon. And uh, I was, a, you know, I helped produce that film, and I did the commentary with the him and the writer. I moderated that, and I shot some behind-the-scenes Super footage on that release, and it's coming out early November on VOD and then early December on Blu-ray, and it's a film that only played really at um, South by Southwest, so it's it's exciting that people are finally going to see this, this film. It's a really neat piece.
3: My plan is to talk with Oren and uh, Jared Case uh, at NoirCon after they do their Q&A uh, panel-type discussion there. And then Oren is coming on the show. If all goes right, he'll be on in December when we do the Lemon Popsicle series. Yep, he's really into that. He's kind of the uh, expert in the field as far as Lemon Popsicle goes. Definitely something that people should be uh, keeping an ear out.
4: Yeah, and thanks for having me on these uh, for this couple of these Halloween ones.
5: It's been a lot of fun.
3: Oh, yeah, it's been great. So where's the best place to keep up with you guys?
5: Uh, Twitter for me. And there, I have also have a Connect Exploitation uh, Twitter account there if people are interested in my website.
4: I'm the same way. I, I use Twitter. I don't really use Facebook for this kind of stuff so much anymore, just mostly on Twitter and uh, Shockwaves, the actual site.
3: Well, I'll be sure to throw those up over at projection com, where people can follow you guys, maybe even follow the projection booth one of these days. We're almost to 10,000 Twitter followers, which I find incredible. You can find links over to our Twitter, over to Paul and Elric's Twitter, over at the website projection com. You can also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation helps the projection booth take over the world.